I've been talking a lot about noir films this month. I've also been watching a lot of L.A. noir yeah, yeah. this month. So I got to ask, what what are some of your favorite L.A. movies? Oh, I mean, Chinatown. Great, but, I know, we're leading to that today. That's the thing. I was no, leading I mean, Chinatown. Pulp, Pulp Fiction. Okay. Because I think Pulp Fiction shows like a different side of L.A. than you usually see in film. Yeah. It, it feels more like a lived in places in the right way, but it doesn't feel as like glossy Hollywood. Like it's just like a neighborhood. Like, there's, yeah, there's yeah. something about movies like trying to capture a specific side of LA you don't see as much like that's what's always a fast thing when someone does LA, does an LA movie nowadays like it tries to do like a big LA movie yeah. like one that came out a few years ago was we talked about on the show a few a few years ago as well was uh, Karen Kusama's Destroyer mm-hmm. because I remember she actively wanted to like showcase movies that didn't take place in the usual like LA location so it's like down in Long Beach and kind of all over the map and uh, I know we talked about To Live and Die in Atlanta. They did something similar where they were down Long Beach and kind of in the valley and all these random places. So it's fun kind of seeing like a movie where like I think sometimes those locations are like the real L.A. locations you go to. Yeah. Not like the Chinese theater or this like those are cool to see, but it's not always capturing the real authentic Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, in the case of this movie, I, I on this watch, I'm just kind of. Curious how they made it look, you know, as old as it as it looks. In the- <laughs> we'll go a little bit into yeah, that. Yeah, because yeah. it's, uh, I mean, like, they really had to find certain locations. And, I mean, I, I, I assume Echo Park doesn't look like that now. anymore. But at the time, it did. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was that was the right. production designer Richard uh, Silbert <clears throat> said was that Echo Park had actually been untouched since the 30s. Wow. So they are just like, we got to shoot there. And I've never um, actually been to Chinatown, but I, I, I want to go down there. I've, I've looked. Uh, the street has changed a little bit since, yeah. since then. Yeah, I was look- actually looking last night of, like, where because I was actually I've been doing that a lot lately with the noir films I've been watching with LA. I'm like, what's this location like nowadays? So yeah. like a lot of times in the movies you'll actually they'll actually show the street name. So I'll like try to find the cross street and try to find the actual location. You'll see how like if it's a house they they've kind of built up to make it look nicer. If it was like a rundown place, sometimes it's just a massive like office building where, where a house used to be yeah uh, there's some nice houses in this movie man there's some nice houses in this movie, and i think most of them still exist oh wow okay. if i looked them up it, it was from a few years ago i think some place like i think one of like the retirement home is a i think it's like a school now mm. um i feel like i feel like they they couldn't quite place where uh, Noah Cross's house was. There, there was like a few different places. They didn't know which one it actually was. or two different uh, uh, possibilities. I think her place is still there. I think the apartment where, again, spoilers alert for Chinatown today. We haven't died. We haven't discussed. Started discussing it yet, but here. But when when the Ida sessions, her apartment that that uh, Jake goes to, right, that's still there. So there's a lot of. That's still in Los Angeles. I mean, it's hard. I was I was amazed when I watched Perry Mason on on Max or HBO Max, or whatever it is now, um, because cause it was HBO Max show first, and then it became Max right. show. It's a whole ordeal. Um, <laughs> but it was also on the HBO channel. It was on the, the HBO channel. Was, it was. Yeah, and the yeah. second season wasn't. So anyway, that's what I'm like. I'm like who knows? Yeah. But Perry Mason, I was just floored by how they were able to capture 1930s right. LA because. If it was difficult in the 70s, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's difficult in the 2020s as well because so much, as we'll, as we'll talk about, is that L.A. is a city that, especially in the, when it went to the 80s and 90s, is not really big on like keeping the history alive. I think it's actually America in general is that a lot of times America tends to erase, the, in like certain cities, erase the history that it has. And so you'll, you'll have kind of 
certain uh, 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 niche places or facets of it that are still there. That's what's always fun to kind of find like a, I want, I've been wanting to do like go through like all the oldest restaurants in LA that have been around since like the 40s or mm-hmm. 50s. Cause I remember because yeah, they talk about the pig and whistle and yeah, how yeah. about the pig and whistle, which is that closed? Cause I, it, I'm not sure. I, it closed. I thought it closed at one time. COVID or I think it closed after, after, let I me, mean, I mean, apparently, yeah, apparently closed. So I, I went there one time, but yeah, it was pig and whistle. Yeah. I went there when I visited, um, was in Hollywood. And yeah. so, and I know they shoot, uh, because like there's a when when JJ and and Evelyn go to the Brown Derby, mm-hmm. Brown Derbies at that point were not around in the 70s. I don't think I don't think there are any more left by that point. So the place they actually shoot at is a uh, a real um, restaurant that's still around, and it's in um, it's the Prince uh, in in Koreatown. It was it's like a really nice place. It looks just like that still. Wow, it's kind of <laughs> um. And because I've been there one time and it's it's a nice spot, but that's where and they, they, they basically shot that as the interior and then a different place, I think, in Beverly Hills for the exterior, because mm. the, the exterior of the Prince is like it's like the bottom of like a, a, a hotel. I think it's in the middle of kind of like apartment buildings. So like it's not the like nice kind of like pull up or like where they're having the valet at they do in this movie before we kind of really dive into Chinatown. I'm Brand Sparks. Oh, I'm David Glenn the Fourth, and this is the Nation Podcast. And this month, we are we're we've been talking about private investigators for Noir Vember. Noir Vember is a time where we celebrate celebrate film noir from neo noir to uh, uh, old school traditional noir to neon noir, which we did last year, or L.A. noir or New York noir or English noir or French noir. There's so many different noir versions. Tech noir, which is like sci-fi noir. Uh, but this month we've been discussing the private investigator, which is kind of seen as a quintessential character within the noir genre. I think early on the 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 trope of it or the character archetype is Humphrey Bogart, right? Because of the Big Sleep or the Maltese Falcon, and maybe he'll play it beforehand. We talked about Murder My Sweet on here many years ago uh, as kind of the first Philip Marlowe movie. But look at that kind of literature's literature kind of aspect of it with Marlowe and. Uh, uh, the Nick and Nora Charles we talked about with Thin Man, uh, the different author, authors are Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. Um, Kelly all that, but what what have we from because you've been on last episode um, with Inherent Vice and you've listened to our sh- our shows Thomas Thomas and me did. What are what's some stuff we've talked about uh, that you've kind of gathered this month? Sure, I mean I think this uh, balance of like work life and you know personal life mm-hmm. and how that can play into the cases uh, has been a big theme especially with I think with private investigators I mean this kind of became a cliche of like cop movies yep. right when they got person no it's personal no it's personal yeah but like uh, with the PI I mean they're not technically you know they're working for their own agency they're working yeah. for, the, for themselves I mean they are licensed but yeah. Uh, so it so it kind of allows for this to, to have a more personal stake. And I think on top of that, that's what makes us connect with the character, right? Yeah. Because a lot of these guys are cynical, brooding, like, you know, the the, the cliche, the the trope of, of noir yeah. is a cynical lead. Um, and so it's uh, fascinating that that's how they can make you kind of, you know, re- relate to them or, 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 yeah. follow, or uh, you know, root for them yeah. in some way. I mean, it's like with a lot of the characters, you know, essentially bringing up about how PIs are, they, they kind of control what cases they take, but they also... Because of that, when things get lean, it's like they have to take some cases they don't yeah, want to yeah. take because they got to make money. Um, and that's that kind of happens to a lot of the cases. Or like another thing too, I've noticed when looking at these, it's like a lot of these characters are coming from a different place 
uh, in their lives. So it's like Scotty is retired cop. Uh, we're talking about night moves on our Patreon uh, after or in the next few days, and that's that's Gene Hackman was a football player that mm-hmm. turned PI. Um, uh, with Jake today, he like worked for the DA, kind of being their investigator. Now he's a, now he's just a private investigator, and he has a vague backstory about vague why he left backstory. The force. Yeah, I which mean, we'll, it gets into a little bit, but yeah, a little bit. We'll t- yeah, we'll talk about that because that's that's very much Robert Town there, yeah. and also Polanski deleting a lot of stuff from town. But yeah, it's very much how do we like they're always kind of coming from place, and also with these kind of PIs, there's also this idea of a previous case or a previous part of their life coming back to haunt them in some way. Yeah. Uh, Inherent vice. It's Catherine Wireson's character. The girl coming, got away. Yeah. Coming back into, um, walking Phoenix. <laughs> Sitting like, into a whole world of trouble. A whole, yeah, a whole world of trouble. <laughs> uh, if it's like, if it's Scotty and vertigo, it's, it's the, the old friend coming back into his life or Nick and Nora. It's, it's with Nick Charles. It's a, it's an old case coming back that he's having to be a part of again. And I think in night moves, it becomes that when it's the, now that he kind of feels some agency to protect the girl. Yeah. And then he finds out. It really, it, yeah. yeah. It really becomes like the back half has become like him doing a new case as the previous case. Right. Um, and I think, and then of course with this movie, the, this backstory of Chinatown, I think like, yeah. getting into, to uh, spoiler territory here, but I think he sees with Faye Dunaway's character a chance for redemption for whatever happened. Yeah, I- I- beforehand. Past. Yeah, that- exactly. <clears throat> Is it at the end? It's like I think even a lot of Brian De Palma movies do this. Like Blowout does right. this very well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, same same exact kind of conceit with the yeah, main character. With the main character yeah. is that like you're introduced to a case in some way that he's not PI. It's very much designed like a PI right. movie. Yeah. And I mean, it's definitely an investigative movie. Investigation movie, and, yeah. And the, this whole theme of obsession obviously plays into Blowout as well. Yes. As, yeah. Oh, yeah. And ha- and how these kind of these this case becomes the obsession of a character. Yeah. We talk about again, night moves coming up of of how there's a comment of like, uh, are you one to 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 Gene Hatman's character? Are you one of those those PIs that like won't stop until yeah. you fight you solve the case no matter what anyone says? And he's just like, not anymore. <laughs> like. <laughs> like that's times have changed, and and that's another thing too. I'm seeing with at least some of the movies we picked out, there's an interesting transitional point. Uh, it's definitely we, the case with inherent vice. Yeah, it's like with inherent. It's which is weird with this about with an inherent vice. There's a transitional point, um, and it's a movie looking back at the late '60s going right. into the '70s, and with Chinatown, what's weird about it is that it's an early '70s movie transitioning into a new period at that point right. in the 70s in terms of filmmaking looking back at a transitional point beforehand of kind right. of how it all happens but that's looking at kind of in the kind of america or california la in between two wars world war one world war two and and kind of what's happening uh at that point so there's a lot of different things that you can do within this genre it's not just like i'm gonna solve a crime there's like more happening with how you can how to intertwine the professional life and the professional or professional life and the personal life and they're really interesting character studies i think the best pi movie is not just trying to solve a case it's looking at this character how they react to it because a lot of times 
I think outside like Thin Man we talked about, most of the detectives like aren't the best detectives yeah. <laughs> because they let the personal life interfere with their professional life. And that's one thing I noticed on this watch because I hadn't seen Chinatown in a few years. But like th- there are moments where there's like a clue right in front of Jake. Yes. And not paying attention. Yes. It's it's only later kind of when it all clicks together yes. for him that he realizes, oh, I, oh. That's I, I wrote down at one point, I go, it's like Scotty and Vertigo where he goes, oh, one, at one point they remember they're a detective. Like right, they just right. remember, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is my job. Yeah. I mean, I think he get, obviously gets swept up into the romance with. Yes. So always and same with Vertigo. Yeah. But then it's just like something happens. You go. Oh, why was I paying attention to that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's a great scene earlier. I don't know. Maybe we could talk about it further in favorite scenes. But when he goes to that, like, city council meeting or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the, and he's re- he's like reading the newspaper. And the guy is literally standing on stage explaining what is what going, is going on. on. If he was just paying a little more attention. It, yeah. It, it, it's only when um, they bring uh, Mulray up on yeah. stage that he puts the paper down. But yeah. it's like, that's what I'm like, dude, it's staring you in the face. It's man. staring you right in the face. <laughs> And, um, and there was like one we'll talk about. Well, it's very brief, but it's when they talk about uh, one of his associates is like, I couldn't make anything out, but he said Apple Core. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> the there's way that a, connects later. That, w- that, that comes very, that becomes very important. But the first time you see it is when uh, Jake gets to Catalina Island, mm-hmm. and he's walking out, and he, he turns around, he, or he sees the the sign on like the door he walks out of it says Alp, Alp, Albacore, right. which is like a fish, Albacore Club. And he sees it and they kind of does a double take. It's very brief because everything's kind of kept wide, but it's kind of like a, huh. Yeah. <laughs> and just gets this car. <laughs> uh, but, but later on he kind of realizes like, oh yeah, that's, I know the connection, the yeah. connection of it all. Um, but yeah, we'll dive more into the private investigator genre and with Chinatown today, as we discuss Chinatown, a uh, neo-noir mystery drama uh, released in 1974, uh, starring Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, written by Robert Town, produced by Robert Evans, cemetery by John A. Alonzo, uh, music by Jerry Goldsmith, uh, production design, I want to bring up these names, these names uh, I want to bring up these names, production design by Richard S- uh, Silbert, also known as Dick, uh, his sister-in-law is also the costume designer, mm. uh, and Thea Silbert, uh, uh, two kind of legends of their time. And then I want to bring up the director of this movie, uh, Rome Polanski, and Polanski, as many know, is a very controversial figure because of, of his personal life and because of him being... Um, accused and then charged or charged with uh unlawful sex well he's he pled guilty to a crime uh unlawful sex with the minor and then basically fled the country and has, yet, has come back and has, and has not come back uh has been found guilty many allegations come forward of him he's yet to come to the country um and is not uh, allowed to come back to the u.s unless he wants to be put up, put on trial and go to jail um, the hard part with art nowadays, especially of any time in the pre in a previous time is having to, uh, try to separate art from the artist. And that's what we're going to be trying to do today. So I understand he, Polanski is a hot topic. I, we do not condone anything he's done in his personal life. We do not support anything he's done in his personal life. We're talking about him kind of as a filmmaker today. So if we speak positive of him, it is only in a filmmaking sense and nothing else that the best way to kind of just like yeah, I say think it? that's great because i want to make that very clear yeah. and um, i think we can't just the, the sad thing is we can't like well i mean i i wouldn't want to but we can't yeah. erase chinatown like it's such an yeah. integral p- movie to the genre yeah. and to the time period yeah. which i'm sure we're going to get into about new hollywood 
Um, so we can't just erase this movie. I mean, yeah. And, and on top of that, there was a lot of people that worked together to make this yes. movie what it is. And a lot of great, talented people yes. of the era. So. And, and art is the thing is art is very much, I think is a personal relationship. So if you choose not to watch movies by people completely yeah. understand, do not put that against you. Um, but it's, yeah, it's very hard. I never try it with films specifically. I don't try to see art as one person, as you're saying, there's multiple people. And so he will play a key figure in this, but we also want to kind of showcase the works of town and Richard Schilbert, and Silbert Nicholson, and man. Nicholson and, and Bob Evans and, and, all, and, and actually a lot of are controversial figures at the sure, end of the day, sure, sure. <laughs> but it's to look at this movie at this time it is is what you can keep talking about. It is very much a snapshot of uh, this time. A, a big a big book I read or been reading for this episode is the Big Goodbye by Sam Wasson. Sam Wasson has has done a lot of great like Hollywood books. He wrote a book on Bob Fosse, which is which is amazing. Oh, I didn't realize it was Sam. Yeah, Wasson, yeah. Sam, he's done so many different like entertainment old school books, and they're amazing. And the Big Goodbye has been an amazing read so far. And it's essentially kind of about the 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 making of Chinatown, but also looking at a period in Hollywood where New Hollywood movement, as we'll talk about, is really kind of happened very quickly. Came at the end of the 1960s with kind of the breakdown of the Hayes Code, people kind of pushing more taboos in cinema. 67 is kind of the breakout year with movies like Bonnie and Clyde and The Heat of the Night. Um, and it kind of continues on with the rise of directors like Scorsese like De Palma, uh, like Arthur Penn, like Polanski, uh, like Pierre Bogdanovich, many, many people. Um, and then kind of comes to a, a screeching halt <laughs> in like 75 to 77 because of the rise of blockbusters. Yeah. Um, but you have this period, which I think is actually very relevant for today, where I think the industry is also currently in an influx. And the difference is in the 70s and 60s, is that when it was in an influx and studios didn't know what to do and how to attract movie-going audiences, you had people like Robert Evans, Bob Evans, who was a movie person. And I think he said in the book, I, in, in Watson's book, he, a quote that he says from, from Evans is that, I'm not so sure about the movie, but I bet on talent and I bet mm -hmm. on my friends. And so people like Nicholson, he goes, I have... I have Jack Nicholson in my lead. I have one of the great young directors of our time and one of the best writers of our time on one movie. I'm going to bet on that. Yeah. And not on, on these other things of maybe the script's a little confusing. <laughs> He's like, I can't, I'm going to trust talent that I hired. Sure. And I think now in our current state is that it's less about trusting talent and more like we got to trust the numbers. So it's kind of interesting yeah. looking at this. The data. Yeah. Where it's kind of interesting looking at this specific period where it was going through a weird time of, of Holly or, or of audience pushback confusion of what audience wanted um, and how it kind of morphed into what it did. And I mean, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, Bob Evans produced a lot of great films, a lot of great films. And when we'll talk about later, when we get to the, like the, uh, the Oscar section, like the, yeah. the aftermath this year is a banner year of filmmaking because it's right before Jaws comes out in 75. Right. And that's kind of where the floodgates open and, and with Jaws and then star Wars, uh, basically companies realize they could make not just money on movies, but like big money on movies. And we're at a point now where that has, it's, it's more just about singles and doubles, not home runs every time. Right. And that's what people like Bob Evans like, Oh, 
this little movie that can do a little bit will help me like love story was a big movie for paramount which no one really talks about nowadays with with uh, ali mcgraw and uh ryan o'neill it was a massive hit for paramount and kind of put them back on the map and it wasn't made for very much it wasn't made for very much it was just it was was a romantic drama and sometimes you have that but like to them it's like that might movie might cost two million dollars and it makes 60 million dollars and that's a big hit for them today that's like they didn't make 400 million what's going on um so it's hard that's a whole other thing but this is again snapshot of a time, snapshot of a genre, because also commenting on a genre that was so integral to the early days of Hollywood. Um, so yeah, but that's it's currently streaming on uh, Paramount Plus, Canopy, Pluto TV, Hoopla. So if you haven't seen Chinatown and you're wanting to see it before we talk about it, go check it out if you can. If you haven't, if you've seen it before and want to rewatch it, feel free. Uh, we'll be spoiling a lot on this and also just kind of talking about in detail what happens in this movie. So, yeah. So, David, what is your history with Chinatown? Yeah, so uh, my sophomore year of college, I always reference that year, but I took a <laughs> It's intro- a big year for... Well, it's, it's like, there's always certain years in people's yeah, yeah, lives yeah. where like, I got really into movies and started watching a lot. Um, but I had taken an intro to film class the first semester, and uh, I... I Coincidentally, my, my roommate was also in an intro to film class. It was the same class, but we had different sessions. Mm-hmm. So we each had, you know, our list of 16, 20 movies, whatever it was. And so every Sunday we would watch both of our movies. And because of that, I got introduced to a lot of great stuff. He got introduced to a lot of great stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of those films was Chinatown, but it was for his class. Mm-hmm. So I at least I I, uh, I have, of course, had heard of it and whatnot. Uh, but I I mean, it, it I, I didn't know enough about it. And I, I was really happy that I didn't uh, because it really like bowled me over. And I just did not see the ending coming i didn't mm-hmm. you know i mean jack nicholson has always been one of my favorite actors but like seeing him in that movie at that time it was in this movie at that time was yeah great. uh you know i mean I, I still think this is probably one of his better great performances but i mean he has done <laughs> yeah uh but yeah i mean it and i've seen it a bunch of times since i think the screenplay we, we studied in, in grad school and rightfully so because it's as close as you can get to like uh, a perfect yeah. screenplay. It is so. kind. Of, it is kind of one of the scripts that is is talked about. Yeah, like uh, Back to the Future. Back, yeah, yeah. In terms of just structure and everything. Again, we'll we'll discuss kind of because it, it it was not as easy as it seems. Sure. Uh, sure. As most scripts aren't. Um, yeah, I came to this in high school. I think similar thing where I, as I said, kind of I bring up high school, early college because at a certain point, um, I went around trying to watch as much as possible. I tried to. That's the beautiful thing. I always preach Letterbox in here, but that's the beautiful thing about Letterbox nowadays because back then it was like I had to go to Wikipedia. I had to go to like AFI Top 100 or AFI's Top 10 or 10 Top 10 um, and find movies that way because there wasn't really a place to go that really recommended movies to go see. Like the video stores were like Movie Gallery and Blockbuster. Most people in my town didn't always watch the older stuff. at, at that worked at those those video stores so like not everyone was suggesting chinatown or whatever there so i think i found it from one of those lists and watched it there it is on the afi list i believe it, i'm pretty sure it is um I, I i don't see why it wouldn't be in terms of <laughs> in terms of film merit um but i understand if not um but yeah and then nicholson said i'm a massive fan of nicholson um uh robert town like i said is, is one of the greatest screenwriters of all time and Polanski is at this at the specifically, specifically this period one of the most talented directors um at the time in terms of how he does like suspense and mm-hmm. and and thrillers and all that 
I want to say this. I didn't say, I didn't state the actual George Polanski, and I'll bring this back up. But he was charged originally with drugging and and sexual assault rape of of a young girl, and he pled for a lesser charge. So I wanted to be clear on that. Anyway, yeah. I'm yeah, because I was like, I feel like I dumbed it down of what the charge was, but he it was way worse than what he actually yeah. was charged with. Um, but anyway, so yes, that was kind of my history. And so also, I think Chinatown too comes back in the conversation because of the Polanski stuff of is it how to separate art from artists with this movie mm-hmm. um and that's it's because always like the prime example of can you do that and so we'll we'll do that today and just talking about the art of the movie so when discussing chinatown we must start our story with robert town born on november 23rd 1934 still alive so he just celebrated his uh, i guess an 89th birthday oh, uh, Tam was a native of Los Angeles, born in Los Angeles. Uh, he grew up in San Pedro. His mother w- was a clothing store owner, and his father was a property developer. Property developer. Uh, <laughs> we'll come to play. Uh, he attended Pomona College in the east side of Los Angeles County in Claremont, California. And out of college, Tam had an interest in becoming a writer and an actor. He took an acting class taught by Jeff Corey, an actor who had been blacklisted during the 1950s. And in that class, Tam met another young actor by the name of Jack Nicholson. And Nicholson and Town would soon become best of friends and roommates. Uh, Town said in Wa- and, and Sam Watson's The Big Goodbye, we shared dreams and hope for the future. In that sense, I was never much closer to anyone than Jack. Town also commented on Nicholson's acting influence on him as a writer by saying, I learned to write as much by watching Jack as anything else. Nelson and Town were part of a close-knit friend group in Los Angeles in the late 1950s that included future director Bob Rafelson, uh, who later did five easy pieces and several movies. Uh, Head. Head, yes. Uh, actor Harry Dean Stanton, who gave a few Hawaii shirts to, uh, Hawaiian shirts to Jack Nicholson, because <laughs> Nicholson loves Hawaiian shirts, I found out during this research. Uh, and future writer Carol Eastman, who wrote five easy pieces, among other, other good movies. Uh, they'd spent a lot of time... Uh, uh, at late night spots like Norm's Diner, hey. listening to Jack Nicholson rant about things. Uh, and me and the group would soon get involved with working with Roger Corman. Corman here making another appearance on our show uh, of how he influenced filmmaking. Uh, Nicholson would work as an actor, I think as a writer as well for for Corman. But Town, Town's first credit screenplay came under a Roger Corman financed film called Creature from the Haunted Sea. Which I've seen. Have you seen it? And yeah. Town's in it. Yeah. He's an actor in it. Is it good? Because I didn't see it. It's a Corman movie. Okay. <laughs> uh, so in 1970, 10 years later, Tam would visit Nicholson in Oregon on the set of his directorial debut, Drive, he said. Uh, on, on the set of Nicholson's directorial debut, Drive, he said. Mm-hmm. Tam came on to do a free uncredited rewrite for his friend to help with the script. And while there, Tam brought along his girlfriend at the time, Julie Payne, a small t- or an actress who kind of did a lot of bit parts and extra roles. Her parents were, were big actors uh, earlier on. So she was also, also grew up in Los Angeles, also native of L.A. area. And during their trip, Tam told Payne that he wanted to write a movie for Jack. Town had mostly done uncredited rewrite work on films and also adaptation work to this point. Uh, he'd worked on TV shows like Our Limits and The Man from Uncle, but Town hadn't gotten a big original screenplay made. I think at one point he said, I'm 38 years old and I have nothing big to my name. And I was like, well, <laughs> I, I understand that feeling at 32. Yeah. Um, but he's like, he's like kind of in a point where like, I wish I was bigger than what I was. I've only, no one really knows my work. I'm, I'm not really going to put myself out there like I want to. And he felt he had this idea that could 
be that for all of him and also include his one of his best friends uh he told Payne julie uh when she asked him what kind of movie does he want to write town said a detective movie in la during the 1930s before world war ii he thought maybe jane fonda could play the lead blonde film fatale <laughs> type role uh, he wanted to write a, Ray- a raymond chandler story for the big screen Payne would or Payne would actually say, Hey, I'm gonna go to the library and research, help you research. So he went to the library in Eugene, Oregon, where they were stationed at, uh, where they were at for the for Nicholson's set when um when uh, um Tam was writing for him. And she went to the library and started kind of getting a bunch of books. And one of the books she found was Southern California, an island on land by Carrie McWilliams that had a bunch of chapters about about section or it was like different table contents uh, chapters on California and the history of California. That, along with an article in the West magazine called Raymond Chandler's L.A., would be kind of the big inspiration for the tone of Town's new script. Mm. Town would begin researching Los Angeles history along with Payne, uh, and he would pinpoint a specific event in the 1910s known as the California Water Wars. This is a series of conflicts between the city of Los Angeles and farmers and ranchers in the Owens Valley of Eastern California over water rights. Two of the most prominent figures during this conflict were Frederick Eaton, and William Mulholland, two friends who had created the Los Angeles Water Company in the 1880s before giving it over to the city with Mulholland staying on as the kind of head of the water company. Mulholland would serve as the template for town's character Hollis Mulray. Uh, Mulholland and Eaton had big plans for growing Los Angeles, and they realized there was a lot of water in Owens Valley. They began diverting that water from the land to L.A., creating an aqueduct that brought water to the city. There's some there's a lot of history around this conflict, uh, but just know this conflict was kind of built on a lie. They stole water from farmers to help build L.A. So kind of arguing that L.A. was built on this lie uh, by taking away from working class people to build this modern city um, and kind of essentially ruining Owens Valley area where essentially the lake they had dried up because all the water was sent to L.A. Uh, and all of this became an integral part of towns chinatown Payne and town were living in la at the time as well and they began noticing how land developers were destroying their wildlife and mountains near their home to make way for a new neighborhood Payne and town would find themselves at city hall to see how their city council worked and they soon found out just how corrupt they were town said everybody's out to make a buck they're hustling they're going to mine it until it runs dry so he's taking this history of la and then seeing 60 years later there's still still some form of it of how can we make money by tearing something apart uh, that's already here. For his detective story, Town realized that Hollywood was changing, and with films like Bonnie and Clyde, Easy Rider, and Carnal Knowledge, taboo topics like violence, drugs, and sex were now out in the open in movies. He was in the middle of writing the adaptation for The Last Detail, which also starred Jack Nicholson, and he said he, he was beginning to push the envelope in terms of profanity, and even though the studio complained about it, he knew they wouldn't stop a movie at this time because of excessive use of profanity, mm-hmm. because there was so much more worse going on. And he kind of saw Chinatown as a way to take that old school movie with modern like with the limitations cut or cut away yeah no haste code right no haste code uh after the last detail town needed money to work on this detective story which still had no title uh so he took a quick job with a friend he knew from his roger corman days and that was francis ford coppola and this quick job was to add a few scenes to coppola's new movie the godfather (laughs) I never knew this, actually. Uh, Coppola feared they were going to lose Marlon Brando because he was upset with a certain scene uh, that that was in the script, and they needed a quick rewrite. So Town went to New York, 
uh, helped write the, these scenes uh, in a night for the next day's filming. Then Tam went back to L.A. where he was met by Robert Evans, the head of production at Paramount. And since the late 60s, Evans had been turning Paramount from one of the worst studios in Hollywood to one of the best. And he believed Godfather would be his crowning achievement. So he wanted to thank Town for wor- for his work on the film and possibly saving the movie to keeping Brando in check because Brando was known to be difficult. Yeah. Um, so Town invited, oh, sorry. Uh, so Evans invited Town to dinner at his famous home, The Woodland in Beverly Hills. And while at dinner, Town would mention a few details about his new script a detective story and Evans was intrigued. Uh, town told him that like I had my buddy Jack on it and town and Evans is like, I want to see it. And town's like, I'm not going to sell it to you. So I'm not going to show it to you. <laughs> uh, town felt the story was too personal to give away to someplace like Paramount. He also knew if that he sold the script as a writer, he would not get to direct it, which is what his hope was right. because it was so integral to his life. There were certain stories that he took uh, one brief story. I'll say, is again big spoiler here um is that the whole mother daughter thing was from a girlfriend that he had that he was in love with where it was her her sister was also her aunt it was something really weird it was like it was like her father um uh had had sex i think with her older sister and the older sister was like pregnant and so basically tan was like they were talking a conversation where oh, Tan's like so what would they what would that make you and it was like uh the sister and aunt aunt and sister and it was kind of the whole same thing like my, right she's my mother and or, or my sister my, and my, my daughter. daughter yeah um what a scene by the way well, and I mean, we'll so yeah and so he also kind of took his like it was all with that same woman like there was he he kind of took this romance story because he was really in love with her and she left and moved just moved back to sweden um oh man and so like he kind of used that as part of this inspiration of of Giddis and kind of losing his love um with the whole stories we talk about chinatown um so he didn't want to give this away it was so close to him uh and uh he also really wanted to make this movie an authentic detective movie he said in most detective movies and chandler and even hammett novels all the detectives are too gentlemanly gentlemanly uh to do a divorce work but i knew in fact that most that's mostly what they did Town wanted his hero to do his work for the money, not for the love of solving crimes. <laughs> On his own, Town said he wrote almost 20 different story beat outlines for this movie. Whoa. He was trying to figure out a way to tie public corruption with the private scandal. He knew he wanted a femme fatale who was involved in the scandal, and you soon find out is an innocent character. He also wanted a character like more of a, a male figure who was seen as a possible corrupt individual that ends up being kind of a, like a non-corruptible person, which is Hollis Mulray. Right. Um, he also knew the idea of like this other, his father figure with, with cross and um, all these different things he was really trying to play with. Uh, by the fall of 1971, six months after town started working on the story, he was still writing outlines, but no script. <laughs> he would change the title multiple times, change the character names and change the story. Finally, the term Chinatown emerged during this time. Town wrote in the and this titled outline Chinatown has come to mean any place where Giddis is on unfamiliar ground, a case, a country, any place where he can be taken by appearances. Chinatown is a state of mind, not an actual place we see, is kind of what I what, he, what I inferred from what he was saying. Uh, Town would soon seek help from his friend Edward Taylor, a teacher at the University of Southern California. This was the most fascinating thing to me. I don't know if you know this like story about him. So 
Taylor was there for town to bounce ideas off of, but like Payne, Taylor would also become an important part in the research for Chinatown. Many of their friends commented on this relationship, feeling Taylor did more than just help bounce ideas for town, with some saying even wrote scenes for town scripts. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Uh, Taylor and town were best friends, and town paid him for his work, but Taylor would receive no credit on any of the work he did with Robert Town, or at least with Chinatown. Between Taylor and town, the two would create over 500 pages of outlines, character details, and notes from research. Uh, outside of town and Taylor's close friends, no one knew how much Taylor was involved in the writing of Chinatown. Uh, they sent their best outline to a friend, and the friend told them the whole water scandal story was interesting, but the movie needed an ending. Needing money, Town met with Bob Evans again, and Evans wanted Town to write an adaptation of The Great Gatsby, a project Evans planned to star his wife, Allie McGraw, who was, they were having a rocky patch, and I think eventually, not long after this, she left him for Steve McQueen, mm-hmm. after they made the getaway together. Town felt he couldn't capture the work of F. Of, of Scott Fitzgerald. He told Evans, so he basically turned him down. Then he told Evans more about his work on Chinatown, and Evans offered to option the story out of courtesy he was actually kind of confused he's like so it takes place in chinatown he's like no he goes then why is it called chinatown <laughs> he's like Such it's an a, executive he's he's like he goes love stories about a love story rosemary's baby's about rosemary's baby chinatown should be about chinatown what do you mean it's a state of mind um <laughs> so so Evans is like, okay, just because you did, like you've done great work, I'll option, I'll I'll send out, I want to option the script. And Town's like, no. But in June of 1972, needing money, Evans took him up on the offer, giving up his chance to direct the movie. Luckily, Nicholson was such a big star. No matter what happened, Jack was totally involved with making this movie, no matter what. And when he bought this, when he optioned the script, Evans like was again doing a courtesy. Didn't think Town would actually finish the script. Uh, Julie Payne, Town's girlfriend. Uh, exiled them to Catalina Island to write the first draft of the script. <laughs> so Town, Payne, and Edward Taylor would go to the island and write it, I think, over a week or, so, or over over a certain amount of time. Uh, Nicholson would spot, spot them money to pay for food while they were there. Uh, when they returned from Catalina Island, they had a script... And it was 340 pages Holy long. Shit. <laughs> Holy shit. Town would then cut the script down to 180 pages. And when Evans read it, he was still confused by it. It needed work and he needed a director to fix it. They reached out to Arthur Penn, director of Bonnie and Clyde, but he turned it down because he didn't understand the movie either. <laughs> uh, also, I think he was working on Night Moves starring Gene Hackman. And that was why he didn't do Chinatown or, or reason, that's what he did instead. But then went to Warren Beatty uh, and he declined. And then Evans wanted to get Roman Polanski. Polanski had done great work for Paramount with his work on Rosemary's Baby. And Evans deemed him a filmmaking genius and he felt he could fix the script. Polanski, however, had left Los Angeles after the murder of his wife, Sharon Tate, in 1969. Um, She was killed by the Manson family along with her unborn child. And since then, Polanski had not set foot in L.A. because it reminded him too much of her. Um, And and the big goodbye kind of goes at length talking about how like she introduced he, he really hated LA before he met her and she made him kind of fall in love with the city. Um, so he didn't want to go back because it reminded him too much of her. Have you ever seen his um uh, I think it's his Macbeth. Yeah. He did Beth right after yeah. And that I mean you feel it in like the pain in that yeah. in that movie. It's uh it's I pretty brutal. I haven't watched Macbeth. I had heard that it was one of the more like beautiful when it, when it came out, it was one of the more beautiful criterion Blu rays people had seen. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, he made Macbeth in 71 
and then he made a comedy that I'm blanking on the name right after that. So, but all over in Europe. I think he was actually living in Rome at the time. Mm-hmm. And Nicholson reached out to him saying, hey, my buddy Robert Town has a script. I want you to read it. He's like, no, I'm good. Then Bob Evans reaches out to him. He's like, hey, we got the script and you got to be here like tomorrow. And he's like, I'm not leaving Rome. I have Passover. He's like, fine. I'll sing the script. Give me your thoughts. So Polanski reads it and he really wanted to make a detective movie. And again, after a few failed movies like Macbeth, uh, Uh, after Rosemary's Baby, he needed a mainstream hit. And he thought this could be it. He loved John Huston's adaptation of the Maltese Falcon. He specifically loved the Paramount detective movies like The Glass Key and This Gun for Hire. Um, Town and and his girlfriend Payne were kind of confused of why Evans and, I guess, Nicholson felt that a Polish immigrant could capture Town's personal story about California. Uh, But Polanski finally decided to do it. Uh, What helped him make this decision was that he had people involved that he trusted. After the murder of Sharon Tate, many people, he said, abandoned him, but people like Evans and Nicholson always stayed with them. Polanski was also able to bring on most of the crew from Rosemary's Baby, including famed production designer Richard Silbert, Richard's sister-in-law and famed costume designer uh, Anthea Silbert. I apologize if that's not the correct pronunciation. Uh, and many others. He wasn't able to bring on his director of photography, however, William A. Fracker, because it seems Evans, this is what I read, didn't want Polanski to have too much control over the movie. Oh, wow. And he wanted to basically kind of... Evans is a, such a fascinating character. Yeah. Have you seen that doc? I, I've gonna, seen parts of the kid. Yeah. The kid stays in the picture. Yeah, yeah. But he's it's, he's it's interesting. He's a wild guy. <laughs> yeah. And then I watched the offer, which was about the making of the Godfather. Yeah. It's good, but Matthew Good, who plays Robert Evans, is amazing because he perfectly captured like, everything I've seen about Bob Evans. Um, and I think I think it I think Affleck is attached to adapt the Big Goodbye into a movie. Yeah, I remember reading about that. And I was like, if they do that, he has to let Matthew Good play Robert Evans. <laughs> Because I don't know anyone else who could play him after seeing him in that, and it was just it wasn't seen that by many people, so it's worth kind of showcasing that performance. Um, so instead, uh, Evans and Polanski compromised on Stanley Cortez to be the director of photography of the movie. Uh, Cortez had been the DP for the Magnificent Ambersons by Orson Welles, and he was also the DP on Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter. So, really big, old-fashioned Hollywood DP. I'll come to play later. Um, <laughs> Polanski would meet up with Town, Evans, and Richard Silbert in Los Angeles to discuss the script. Uh, while a production designer, Silbert had a talent for story, and he was always heavily involved in the movies he worked on in terms of the story structure perspective. Uh, during the meeting, Polanski gave Town a ton of notes. He felt the script was too long, coming in at 180 pages, and too complex. He wanted all the unnecessary subplots and characters cut out, instead wanting to focus solely on J.J. Giddis and his perspective. He didn't think there should be multiple points of view in this movie, which is fair. Uh, also, Evans didn't like the movie it was called Chinatown and didn't take place in Chinatown. <laughs> uh, and so they kept kind of pressing for a scene to be added in Chinatown. Uh, I think even Silbert was like, what if we made some like, like one of the characters loves Chinese food? And they're like, we're not going to do that. <laughs> also, Polanski didn't like the original ending of the movie, which had Evelyn Mulray killing Noah Cross and her daughter escaping with her going to jail. Uh, Polanski wanted a more bleak ending, while Town wanted a bittersweet ending. He's like, it should be dark, but there should be some glimmer of hope that the daughter gets away, the the villain is killed, Jake has learned something, and we end there. 
Let's do the opposite. Polanski's like, no, <laughs> that's not the way real world. The real right. world is. It's gonna like the the bad guy is gonna get away, and we're all gonna be depressed by it. Town later said he goes, I don't mean this unkindly, but I think it was impossible for Roman to come back to L.A. and not end his movie with an attractive blonde being murdered. Interesting. So he's basically saying, yeah, it's it's a representation of Sharon Tate and her murder and the bad guy getting away. In this case, Charles Manson. Even though he didn't get away, he goes to jail, but he's not dead. Yeah. And, and he only died a few years ago. Only so. died a few years ago. Um, Polanski and Tan would soon move into a house together for a short time, cranking out a new draft. They basically started from square one. Oh, wow. And saying what scenes we want to keep, what scenes we not want to keep. And they would work every day and they would fight often. <laughs> uh, they worked 10 hours a day. And finally, after two months of working together, the duo would separate because they could no longer work together because they hate each other so much. In Town's eyes, Chinatown was no longer his, his love letter to LA. It was now Rome Polanski's. And soon Polanski would soon write his or and soon Polanski would write his own draft, eliminating Town's narration, making Giddies more of an instigator throughout the movie and kind of taking away some other characters. Some of the characters that were really involved in Town's version were completely cut out of the movie in Polanski's version. Uh Roman said he could have claimed credit for the movie as like a co-writer, but he decided not to. Plus, I know the WJ is weird about directors doing a pass, like yeah. giving them a, a writing credit. You have yeah. to do extensive work, which it sounds like he did. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's 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 really kind of hard. Again, so much is, is between both of them. Sure, sure. Because uh, I think there's stuff that's still there. Because I think one of the things, even when he changed stuff, there was one bit I'm reading in the book that... Uh, and and Town's version, Giddy's was really big, like uh, obsession with Sea Biscuit, and I think like maybe one of the own horses. And there's a part when he's reading a newspaper, the newspaper he, yeah. he's reading sea, about yeah, Sea Biscuit. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so stuff still like was it's still Town's vision, no matter what. It's just Polanski. It sounds like just like really chopped away at the three hundred something or one eighty pages when got it of like the separate stuff because like all the all the stuff about the water aqueduct that's all. Uh, town and town had a which we'll talk about here. Town was was very like was was unsure of when to bring in information about the incest storyline. He was like, "Do we do it earlier? Do we do it later? Uh, does all is all this stuff being told like in like past tense? Like it's already happened." He's like, "Oh no, we can start start before it happens, so we're we're active throughout." But he was like, I want it to happen. He basically said, I want it to happen later in the script, not early in the script, where we were like, we're slowly revealing information, not revealing information at the very beginning, which is a very great note to know for any kind of screenwriter, young or old. Polanski kept wanting him to bring it up farther into the move, earlier into the movie, saying that was the core of the film when Town ordered that it wasn't. And the reveal doesn't happen until 18 minutes left in the movie. Right. It's late. So I think Town won that argument, and I think he, the movie's better for it. I agree, because it's like, before that, you know, Giddis is going on all these yep. different paths, and if he knows that earlier on, I mean, I think that kind of ruins yeah. the mystery. I yeah. Mean, I mean, and ruins, we'll, ruins I agree. Word, and, we'll, and we'll talk about kind of the hints of it, because they hint yeah. at it throughout. Oh, for sure, for sure. And it's great. And, but, and even her reactions, I mean, you can mm -hmm. you tell clearly tell yeah, she's traumatized. But yeah. anyway. uh, but when it came to cast, and they initially wanted to go with Jane Fonda, uh, Fonda, however, like Arthur Penn, didn't understand the script. Uh, so finally decided to go, to go with Faye Dunaway, who was having to choose between Chinatown 
and Night Moves, which oh, is where yeah. Arthur Penn had gone off to direct instead. There's a great airplane in the book where, where Bob Evans and her, and her like manager or whatever are negotiating over the phone. Um, he's like, yeah, well, Jane, Jane's really interested. So Faith better take this offer. We'll have to go with Jane. And they go back and forth. She's like, well, she's doing night moves. So you better give her a better offer. And they keep kind of working on the price. And then when they accept, uh, Bob's like, yeah, Jane passed. So, uh, <laughs> and, then, and then the manager's like, you son of a bitch. She's like, she's also Bob. Uh, there was no good night moves for, for Jane or for Faye anyway. So she wouldn't done it anyway. He was like, nice working with you like he's like he's like he loved the, the manager so much because she would do shit like that because yeah. <laughs> bob bob evans is such a just a character and like he almost loves playing the game of hollywood uh to where he respects you if he if you like kind of outplay him yeah uh but yeah but, i mean that's why he was successful he was that's successful. why he was successful so with a cast and crew in place and a script in decent shape but lacking an agreed upon ending uh, Chinatown began production in October 1973, and that leads us to favorite scenes. So, David, what's one of your favorite scenes? I mean, I guess it doesn't technically count as a scene, even though I consider the opening titles a scene. But Jerry Goldsmith's score is yeah, the, amazing. The love theme, dude, and even just the, like the old school titles, like it God, perfectly sets so sets you up for the, the that this is going to be like yeah. a period piece in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I love that, and then I love the cut to Curly like just losing his mind about these photos. Yeah. And I mean it's it's brutal. And yeah. and you even see like in that moment um uh you see Giddis or 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 Jack Nicholson performing this. Yeah. Like he he has some sort of sympathy for him but he's like kind of getting him trying to get him to, like you know it's yeah. over. the case is over man. Case like, over. Yeah, like, it's like I, I got other stuff to do. <laughs> and again kind of talking about towns towns like uh hey uh, whatever they they might have fought town and Polanski with this but like it seems Polanski kind of captures what town was going for. Sure. Because the opening shot of the movie is literally photographs of of his divorce work, of a, of a man and woman having sex, and it's basically, it's a spying on them. Yeah, when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, that, I mean, this movie instantly it's, sets up that It that's, sets it up. It's, that, it shows that, that Nicholson, or that JJ, yeah. the Jake Giddis, is different than any detective you've seen. Yeah. Um, and they reference it multiple times. Like, mm-hmm. the in the barber scene, of course, is great. I mean, I know it's yep. over the head, but... No, you're right. Yeah, and he's like... Uh, and that guy's like calling him out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jack's That's a great scene. scene. I think yeah. I think that was a, a ad scene from Polanski, if I'm not okay. mistaken, because you wanted some sort of like sympathy for Nicholson. That like he like he's doing it to make a buck, and he's like, "What? Like, oh, I did this, and you're criticizing me, but you probably threw hunt with people out of their homes today, and mm-hmm. you don't bat right. an eye." Like and, and what, again, who is good, who is bad in this Like that argument world. could have just been Yeah, exactly. Like that argument could have just been between them, but it's also speaking to this larger point about once yep. we find out later what Noah Cross is up to. Um it's yes. it's like everybody's corrupt, right? It's not everyone's yeah. corrupt. <laughs> End of the day. You might have the judge of 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 how much corruption is, is too much corruption. Yeah. Um But anyways, what's some of your favorite or one of your favorite? I mean, right right after that I love uh so uh uh Diane Ladd. Uh, Laura Dern's mother right. plays Ida. Or well, she plays the the first Evelyn Mulray we get, who we, who we later find out is is, is, is Ida Sessions, yeah. and it's essentially a woman's hired. We don't know this at the moment in time. Right, a woman's hired as an act or as a person as to to pose as Evelyn Mulray. And she talks to to Jake about, oh, she thinks her husband's having an affair. <laughs> I love his reaction. No, really. So <laughs> what I love about it. Because I wrote, because it's a great, it's a great scene by Nicholson. Yeah, Nicholson's really, I mean, Nicholson's great in this movie all around. Yeah, but it's a great introduction. He's like, you don't say, and then, <laughs> and then he goes like, but it's also just kind of the nature of, the, of this profession that yeah. he knows. He's like, he's like, look, he's like, do you love your husband? Yes. Then go home and never think about it again. Right. He's like, because he knows. What he goes, once you open this can of worms, 
There's no closing it. Right. Because if you think he's having an affair, he's probably in some, nine times out of ten, he's probably having an right. affair uh, in, in his in his line of profession. Uh, and it's like seeing the proof is not even going to help anything. It's, yeah. Like, and he's just photos that he clearly saw. Yeah. I mean, especially coming right after that scene where exactly. we see his reaction to it. Who's supposed to be this big, like, tough New York yeah. kind of guy. And, it's like yeah. there is something to him like okay i can make money i make money this way but like i feel i'm, I'm basically ta- i'm he's aware he's taking people's money for their pain but it's it's a living is kind yeah. of his like mantra in a way um i love his uh assistants too one of them is i'm sure you mentioned later but is played by crispin glover's dad oh yeah bruce no. glover yeah yeah um is, uh, is that yeah that's the is that the heavier set yeah one? yeah because he looks, wait, he's in uh, Diamonds. Duffy. Yeah, yeah, he's in Diamonds Are Forever as well. But, yeah, that guy. Yeah, but like you see it in his face when you're looking at him. You're, you're like, right. Whoa. I never noticed. I never uh, realized that. But uh, I think he is a little bit skinnier in uh, Diamonds Are Forever. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I love his assist, both of his assistants, especially like how it sets them up instantly. Yeah. Because um, I think it's Miss Mulray, the, the fake Miss Mulray, who's like, uh, he tells her all the fees and he's like, plus the 200 for my assistants. For my assistants, yeah. yeah. Well, he has the point, oh, can we talk about in private? She's like, well, these are my associates, right. they, so they, it's better for them to I be here. I need their help. Yeah. I'm going to need their help. And so they need to hear all the need to be here for this. Yeah. Um, um, but I also love, again, talk about the tech, detective aspect, kind of all the other, with the associates, the way he kind of uses them, where it's not like fully explained, but it's yeah. almost like they work in shifts. Because he says like, when he goes and follows Mulray, and the guy's like, oh, I had to go back there three times for the <laughs> change watch. The clocks, yeah. yeah. Or change the watches. Change the watches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like you never, it's like you're almost like always around the clock working in some way. And then it's like. I, and I know I'm skipping ahead here, but it's right. like when he, later when he's just trying to get some sleep. And it's like, because yeah. it's always my question in these kind of movies. Like, when do, when do they sleep? sleep yeah. So I do think it's interesting that um, they set that up, that they're like, like you said, around the clock around kind of thing. Clock. Like t- taking turns, especially with something like that where he's just kind of standing in a one spot. And, yeah. Uh, it's a stakeout essentially. But. Yes, and like with them, it's like this is literally this is what's paying their bills. So right. like they have to get everyone involved to make money. And right. It's almost like how can we milk the money as much as possible? Um, yeah, I love so I, I love kind of the tricks he does. I, I love the kind of the, the watch trick that he has, where it's like when he when he backs away, like he runs over the watch, so the watch stops. You know what time he left? So he's like, oh, he stayed there all night because of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he grabs that guy's cards later and uses those to get into the um, great trick. Yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me. I tell, it reminds me a little bit what he does. He does it a few times. Uh, again, not a detective move. Not a not a. It's a cop move. It's not a private investigator move. It's it's uh, Eddie Murphy and Beverly Hills Cop because mm-hmm. Axel does a lot of similar things to get into places. JJ and Axel have very similarities. And this, <laughs> well, like they have a lot of cool tricks to like to 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 like get into places or to kind of get stuff from people, but they're also good, like committing to a bit. Absolutely. And like, like staying when, in it until they get the information. When they he goes need. to the retirement home and he's pretending like so him. And, yeah. <laughs> him and Evelyn where he's just like, he, he's just like, uh, so yeah, what, what about, uh, or can we see the records of who, who's all here just to make sure if they're not Jewish? And he's like, Oh, that was a test. Yeah. Like, like I, I, that's why I hoped you'd yeah. say, like it's it's he he always has an answer for it. Like and either way it goes. Yeah, it's like even when he's when he goes to see the the new water company guy, and he's just like, oh yeah, I'll wait around. Yeah, it's, it's like, he's like I'm on my lunch break. She goes, he'll be busy for for a long time. I take a long lunch. Yeah, he's like sometimes all day, whistling, yeah. driving her crazy, whistling, asking, asking her, her questions. questions. But then she does give him some important information. Yeah, so, he, yeah. And, and that's the thing in this movie is, is that every little thing 
is like some important piece of information and it pays off and pays yeah. off yeah it's like i mentioned the the when he's taking the, the basically the apple core bit where it's like his detective his, his associate took I think, pictures I think it was duffy yeah or it might have been the other one and it was the other oh, one yeah. who took the pictures he's like oh i just could I, there's so much track all i heard was apple core he's yeah. like what the hell does apple core mean <laughs> and then later on when he goes to catalina to see Noah Cross, he sees the sign of of apple core club and he's like oh and it's not like Polanski doesn't do like a close up of his face and the close up of the sign. It's all done in a wide, yeah, and just lets everything play out. That being said, there are some great point of view shots in this, and mm-hmm. I, I think to your point earlier about Polanski wanting to take the story and only be Giddis's perspective, yeah, that I think that helps. And I love the shots like behind him in the car. You just like you're there like right over his shoulder, or yep. sometimes his point of view as well. Uh, and I, I think it's a great way to to put us in his shoes and help us try to solve the case along with him. Yeah, I, I was listening to Deacon's talk about roger deacon's cinematographer talk with me he's like the thing about this movie is that there's no melodrama yeah. like it's very it's a very serious movie without going like too over the top and it's dramatic everything feels like the like i thought i wrote down how the fights they have oh it feels so realistic they feel so realistic they're so rough yeah um they don't feel like cinematic in any way especially the the fight he has at the retirement uh, home. yeah yeah outside yeah yeah i was that's why i was like this is rough oh, yeah even like and Nicholson, like it's literally two men like struggling, just struggling, yeah. yeah. And then like, he kicks the gun, and like, he's out yeah. of breath when he looks the guy in the face. <laughs> um, and then that Jerry Goldsmith score comes in, yeah, beautiful. Um, and then you have, I'm mean, we're skipping around, but that's fine. Um, but uh, uh, what else? I have? Let me write it down. Let's see. Um, oh yeah, then you have when Polanski does the whole nose thing. Well, mm-hmm. again, you have the bit where he goes back to the aqueduct. And he he basically almost like he gets like in the water and like gets thrown down the yeah. aqueduct and has to get out and that's when the Polanski and the other dude show up uh, and he cuts his nose kitty cat and cuts yeah. his nose and earlier that's where they found Mulray's that's body. Where they found Mulray's which body. is the Hollywood Reservoir I actually walk around this location all, all a lot quite okay. often yeah because yeah, yeah. it's over it's over in the I guess in Studio City Burbank yeah, area yeah. okay yeah. I've never been there um or I've, I've, been quite, the, I, I've been to Burbank there's uh, quite a few hikes over there so, yeah but. okay. Um, but yeah, but I keep going back because I, I was looking up wherever he's at beforehand, where where uh he's the outside on the horse, like that. No, not that, that one. Oh. The one he's by, we parked for the cafe, that where he parks at and he's watching. I guess where he does the, which I guess is the reservoir as well, just outside of it. Yeah, the Hollywood Reservoir. Because I was looking at where that cat and that cafe just closed for the like in 2020. That cafe had been around for a long time. That was that he's like he's parked by for a while. Um, close twenty twenty. Um, no, and I love when he. What I can't remember. Where, where, I think it's when he's talking to um. I, I think it was whoever to ask about his nose. Like, what happened to your nose? Against the other water company company guy goes, yeah, I like it. I like breathing through it. <laughs> um. Well, you ask it too. He's like, uh, like how, how are you feeling or something? He's like, well, it hurts to breathe. <laughs> hurts to breathe. Yeah. Um. But I love when he. It's the scene at the Brown Derby with him and Evelyn, where you kind of like. You still don't know where she's at in this story. Mm-hmm. Like she, you definitely know she's hiding something from from Jake, and Jake thinks it's dealing with like the whole scandal or the the corruption, all this. It's like uh, your husband's dead, and I I think someone murdered him. Like, and I think you're still hiding something from me. Um, and it's the great scene, and then and he gets in the car again. Tell me, has great moments where she has 
you can tell she's trying to figure out, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little more later uh, on set of if, if this is a choice or if this is just her not knowing her lines. Um, these moments of hesitations, and then she says something, and it's that scene out, outside the Brian Derby where she's telling, she's like, I think wants to tell Jake something, and then is about to say it as he's driving away, but it's too late. There's a lot of that happening in the movie. Mm hmm. Um, another thing she does that with. Oh yeah, yeah, and that that was another example of like the the hits right there, the yeah. clues right there, man. Yeah, yeah. If you just hung around for hung around a little like, bit longer, she was gonna tell you something. She's gonna tell you something, and yeah. I think she wants to tell you, yeah, but doesn't know how to tell you because it's also. I mean, she's traumatized. She's yes, and you and you especially see that in the, cutting ahead to the bedroom talk when yes. he says he went and met her father. That's yes, and and yeah. it happened once before when he mentions her father and she's she she our handshaking yes and, uh, and she tries she likes another cigarette when she first about say father she stops yeah and then says it finally but it takes her a minute to actually say the word father which again is just a clue and then uh for one so he go or well, he she hires him um, but at first it seems like she's just hiring him to, well, she says she's going to send him the check, right? To, yeah. Uh, to, so that it, they don't catch on to the fact that there was this fake. Yeah. Uh, Evelyn. Uh, yeah. yeah. Because he, he, he goes up and pretends, uh, when he meets, cause we talk about the, we talked yeah. about this of tropes that happen of, of a PI and his relationship, their relationship with police force is that, and this is a perfect example. But this that, is probably yeah. one of the better examples of this where he meets with, um, uh, Lieutenant when I'm blanking on his name. Uh, uh, Escobar. Escobar, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, Who has just been made lieutenant? Just been lieutenant. To prove, and he's 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 from JJ's past. He's yeah, from Jake's in past. Chinatown. In Chinatown. <laughs> oh, I'm out of Chinatown now, Jake. Yeah. I'm, I'm lieutenant. But that is one great thing also about this movie. It's um, we don't need the whole full history, right? We just nope. know that he knows all these people. He knows Morty, the mortician, yeah, he, or the coroner. He knows uh, he, he knows that Mulvihill guy, yeah. the, the the hood. Yes, uh, <laughs> Mulvihill. Like, what do they got you doing? Here, the common water. Ah. <laughs> How'd you know you don't drink it and you don't bathe in it? Yeah. Like, I must send you a letter. But then you would have had to read it. You had to read it. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, but no, and I think that's the thing with whatever Plansky does, the script of it. Yeah. That comes from town. Town, it's almost he, he like. He builds that great he character. He built with out it. such a, a yeah. masterful work. And it because it's so interwoven you can't delete those little details mm -hmm. like what so yes the whole sea biscuit thing is a shot as a, a shot or whatever just of the newspaper yeah. a newspaper but that was such a bigger part of it i think there was a whole like love of like some love of with a different character that was cut out between ida ida's character and a different character and that's what kind of spurs certain things there are certain things that were cut that because tana made it so integral to those characters is it still seeps through the story? They all feel lived in and all feel well developed. Okay, so when he goes, talk about Kent's throughout. Well, I love again the the change of direction at the midpoint when she hires him for real, like kind of mm -hmm. cover up. His, right, right. Then then he goes say, I'm gonna go to go to to meet your. He, he doesn't say this, but he realizes he's gonna go meet the father. Yeah, he doesn't tell her that till the bedroom conversation yeah. later. And um, John Houston, man, John Houston's great. John so Houston's menacing, great. and like you just you you totally buy that this guy's just so up his own ass that he actually believes he's doing i mean i know he knows he's he's yes. greedy and he knows that yes. but he just believes that that's the only that's, way that's one thing i read in the book was that how that's what makes that character even stronger is that i think and maybe town's version at the end he kind of like oh kind of like feels regret yeah but polanski makes it more like no i feel like i did everything like i did yeah. what i needed to do yeah 
and that's what makes corrupted American dream. Yeah, that's what makes me more evil. He even asks him later when he confronts him. He's like, "How much more do you need?" He's like, "The future." And you know, I don't. It's the The future, future, JJ or uh, Mr. Gittis. Yeah. And I love how he always has his name wrong. He calls him Gitz. <laughs> Mr. Gitz. It's Giddies. I think I, at some point he gives up like correcting him. Yeah, he does. <laughs> but again, and that's and then in that scene when he talks with, with Noah, yeah. that's when again, like, you're starting to see Chinatown creep, like the idea of the state of mind like creeping mm-hmm. into his life again. But when he says, he, he said, we actually calls, no, he's like, when was the last time you saw Hollis? Because, oh, it's been a long time. My old age, I don't remember. He was like, well, it's three days ago at the Pig and Whistle. Hey, do you want the photos? Do you want the photos? <laughs> or he's like, I have them in my office. Yeah. And he goes, what were you talking about? What were you arguing about? He goes, my daughter. And you don't know which one he's talking about yeah. once you know what the actual twist is. Because is he talking about Evelyn or is he talking about Catherine? I assume he's talking about Catherine because the I think information Catherine as well. that just came out yeah. through the newspaper because J- Jake had taken a picture of Mulray yeah. and, and her. Yeah. Um. And so now that this is kind of known, I think he doesn't want them to find out that that is his yes. daughter and his... <laughs> and it's weird, again, to talk about Houston's performance. The way he says daughter, he says it differently in those two times. Yeah. The way he says daughter, which makes me think he's talking about Catherine, and then he says daughter a different way when he's talking about Evelyn. Mm-hmm. And it's such a subtle thing, but you can tell there's this weird, twisted, like, uh, um, infatuation with um, um, with with Catherine, right? And then this like hatred towards Evelyn, right? I didn't it's even I didn't even notice that, but yeah, that's, it's fast. Uh, I have to go back and catch that next time because he just he says it differently, and it's a, it's just really it's really yeah. unique, or really interesting. Um, and then we get to the orange groves section. <laughs> great, great, and great that's scene. another shot behind him in the car. I just love the I don't yeah. know why I love the shot so much, but yeah, he, that chase is crazy. I think Richard Silbert, the, the production designer, had to find that actual location because he's like, I wanted to find orange grove that had narrow, uh, like like yeah. lining because then he gets stuck, you know, yeah. in that chase, but. So you have yeah. a more tense scene. It's, it's great. Um, and then again, the, a, a trope of the pre PI um, story is he gets knocked out by. Uh, yeah. I, I love saying he's like, "What are you here for?" And he was just like, "You okey." He, he was, yeah. he was like getting mad at the guys and he gets knocked out. But we talked about this in Murder My Sweet years ago. Is that you have know, PI gets knocked out to keep that perspective? Is that the the it fades to black? And then the next time it comes up, it's fade, it fades up from black, and they're waking up. Right. So you don't know what's happened. It's like every time you see this happen in a movie, it's a character coming into a new world. Right. And here it's like we had to call your we had to yeah. call your your uh, employer. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a trope, but like it's actually a, like a way to transition to the next. You know, it part. is. Yeah. It is. And uh, n- next part of the scene. Yeah. Um. And then uh, and then Evelyn arrives uh. And they and they go off in a beautiful shot of the the sun sunset mm-hmm. in the background, mm-hmm. uh, and they're starting to kind of put together like, oh, like uh, when he when he, the kind of bit of the names because he, he went to the Hall of Records to find out like who are these people that are buying this they're buying this and then it's like oh I have an idea and he goes to retire my home and all the names that again on the wall yeah. uh, it's such a great it's just a great mystery yeah all the names are on the wall and then he talks to the lady yeah and that's how you find out more about the Albacore yeah Albacore that's connected yeah. to the um the retirement home and you're like whoa and how they're ba- it's it's, yeah. not, it's basically a front to like right buy create like dummy organizations yeah. uh to buy all this land he's like do you know you're rich and she's no, like you're oh, rich, no. I, my I, husband had land oh that one, no that was back in the- yeah <laughs> well he's just he goes like sitting around here is 
is a group of people with a 500,000 acre or 50,000 <laughs> acres of land and yeah. orange groves of this valley. Um, and, and that's kind of, I think I was reading up on the, on the California water wars. It's kind of, I don't know if it happened in that way, but basically the guy eaten like bought up a lot of land, mm. uh, secretly and then like sold it off for like just much more money basically. And then you have Evelyn and Jake having sex. So this is a big argument between, between town and Polanski because Polanski wanted to be like, wanted to show them having great sex and town's like, no, it should be like, okay. <laughs> because, and, but Polanski's trying to make it more of this love story. Oh, he should be upset when she dies. Like, it's not really about sex. Like it mm-hmm. should be kind of like, it's just about them becoming more intimate. And that's where you kind of add the story of like, um, uh, I think why why they added the like him her helping him with the nose and everything yeah. and kind of make them get more closeness, which is an interesting decision by the way because for like a quarter of this movie I'd say he has his face somewhat covered yeah and that's just a testament to Nicholson that he's still able to act through that you through know? that yeah um, but anyways um, yeah and then of course they have that bedroom conversation yep um, and I I do think it's interesting from a character perspective that that is the time he decides to bring up that he he visited her father because it's her, like her at her most vulnerable yeah. right. And um, it's after he's also revealed stuff about uh, his own past, his own past yeah. with Chinatown and what it meant. And mm-hmm. I think one of the lines, I don't know if it was in that scene beforehand, which she was like, he goes, I'm, I meant to protect a girl from getting hurt. Yeah. I meant to protect someone from getting hurt. I ended up making her get hurt or something is mm-hmm. kind of how it's worded. Um, but yeah, vulnerable, vulnerable, he reveals about the father and he doesn't know any of the backstory. He knows there's something weird there because of how yeah. she acts, but he doesn't know the extent of it. And like, I think again, Nicholson's performance he sells it in that moment when she yeah. actually reveals to him later um what, yeah. like, Jesus man what a reaction I'm like what when yeah. he when, when she the, actually like tells him what happened like because he's he's so frustrated with the case and he thinks she's behind it mm-hmm. and then you know he's, sma- he's smacking her which yeah, yeah. talk about the morality there but um when she actually finally says she's my sister and my daughter then yeah. and he's like he raped you and like like that reaction is just so brutal man yeah like, like he finally puts it all together like how sick this fucking man and it's yeah how how ins- how how insane that's yeah. when he goes up later when he's in China he's like he's insane yeah. Escobar he's insane yeah <laughs> he's crazy <laughs> he's a rich man he can get away with it and he thinks he can he, he thinks, thinks he-, he can and she I love when she's like he owns the police and he's like I am a rich man um, <laughs> what Mister Gettis said is true what Mister Gettis said is true I am a rich man <laughs> um, um yeah what a sick bastard man and and. Again, I wrote down it's like Tam, like Tam Plansky or whatever, holds that reveal for so long about the sister and daughter. Yeah, like well, because it, once he finds out, because he follows her after they have that bedroom conversation and finds out that she knows where the girl is, uh-huh. and at that point she says she's my sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, I think he does buy it at, in that moment. Uh, but it's later that he that she reveals that that she's yeah. both but I, I love that shot of him following like going around the house following her and then mm-hmm. he sees he's like what the hell is going on she now that she's holding on to the girl too and mm-hmm. you know this whole thing of like that is who allegedly Mulray was cheating on her with yeah and so he's like trying to connect it and it's only later that obviously when she reveals that what why she's holding her yeah um and then you have again the big ending where they're in chinatown yeah. Um. And again, the bleak, the bleakness of the ending. Yeah. Uh. She gets shot and killed, and no, no is the the daughter is the daughter sister Catherine is crying in the car, and like it's just a brutal shot of like the like basically the face, yeah. the face of, of Evelyn, and 
Uh, and then Noah's like, oh, God, yeah. oh, God. And then he's basically like the way he grabs Catherine, yeah. who's yelling, just taking basically taking her in a dark alley. It's like and then and then Jake is it's very much similar to blowout in this way. It's like Jake is sitting there watching it happen. And the cycle has repeated. Yeah. And it's going to keep everything. Yeah. He 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 didn't like basically yeah. everything's repeating for them where now Noah has the girl. He, yeah. The young and the assumedly young, will do the same. Do the same yeah. thing he did to Evelyn the cycle repeats there and then Jake with him is that he was here to make someone uh to protect someone and because he and he thought he would actually succeed yeah, this time yeah. but, and because but because he kind of gets cocky yeah that's someone pointed out in one of the retrospects I watch is that like Jake could go and take them himself but he wants to be the hero right he wants to confront Noah and like say he won He's not actually focused on saving them. And because he lets the ego get in his way, that's when he loses. Right. And so this, and that's why I think he's realizing the moment. It's like he could, he didn't have to get Burt Young to take them. He could have done it himself. Right. But he wanted to go and, say, and tell Noah, I know what you did. You murdered this. Well, yeah. He could he got them away first, but he, he had to be kind of the, the hero. And that's what gets him in the end. Mm-hmm. And it's, just, it's a fascinating kind of take yeah. on, on that. Um, and I read too with Chinatown. The reason why it's like again, uh, that one of the greatest lines to forget Jake is Chinatown yeah. is that I think I read that a lot of people felt that Chinatown at that point was almost it was hard to uh, have a police force there at this moment in time because of the language barrier. Mm-hmm. Is that people didn't know if you they were helping the citizens or hurting the citizens. Of who was bad and who was good, so it was kind of almost in their eyes unlawful. Like you couldn't really. There's no no way to like, um, to f- like find the people you need or to crack down crime because you didn't know who was good, who was bad. Right, right. And that's kind of what the ending is. The end is to forget Jake at Chinatown. Is that yeah. there's nothing we can do. Who's good? Who's bad? Who knows? Um, we kind of just have to leave it as is. Yeah, it's brutal. And, and Nicholson's like reaction. Nicholson's there too. face is his his oh, his, his face throughout everything. His yeah. face throughout the entire movie, Mark and all, is great. On set life, when it came to the look of the film, production designer Richard Silbert and costume designer Anthea Silbert uh, were kind of the ones that helped design the the visual style. Richard said the difficulty in finding locations in Los Angeles was because the city was always changing and erasing its history. You're always looking around to get rid of television antennas when you should be thinking about something else, is what he said. Mm. Richard would give himself a set of rules for the look of the film, wanting to showcase the drought that ran throughout the movie. So he wanted all the colors to go with that idea. Uh, so a lot of mostly browns, mostly reds. The only time you see you would see green is when somebody has water from from the grass, is what he said. And there were no blues. Blues was kind of taking out completely of the movie. Uh, Anthea would do the same with her costume design, saying she would never design costumes for a scene without knowing the set. So she kind of went off. So she's like, I don't like blues anyway, so I won't use any blues in the costuming of the movie. Mm. Um, Richard also wanted to use mostly Spanish architecture for the buildings to represent early Los Angeles. Uh, Anthea Silbert would also use pictures of William Mulholland as inspiration for Hollis Mulray's look, Mm. uh, which goes in line with Town's inspiration for the character. Uh, She pulled a lot from photographs in the era, saying she used a lot of her mother's like scrapbooks and her mother's like friends scrapbooks because she was born in 1937, the year is supposed to be taking place around the time it's supposed to be taking place. 
Um, but she was trying to make it very realistic for the era. But Polanski said you should also try to capture the look of movie characters from the era, be- era because that's what modern audiences know. They won't actually know the realism. Like the, of, accurate, the, yeah. accu- the accuracy. They associate the movies they saw. Yeah. So it needs to be a bit of a mix. So I said earlier, Stanley Cortez, the director of right. photography, uh, was the agreed upon compromise between Polanski and Bob Evans. About a week or so in production, Polanski was having issues with Cortez. Cortez, Polanski said, was a nice man, but he was going too slow. He said he was too old-fashioned in his style, and he wanted something more modern and more realistic. So Polanski decided to fire Cortez, and Bob Evans and him agreed upon John A. Alonzo to be the DP. Who shot a lot of good stuff, like uh, yes. his Bear, Scarface. Oh, well, that's later, after this, but, yeah, later. Yeah, after this, but. Bob Evans liked Alonzo because he was director of photography on Harold and Maude oh. a few years before for Paramount. Alonzo had mostly done documentaries, so he used more natural lighting in his style. And tr- just he basically just used light bulbs, like regular light bulbs for lighting uh, instead of professional film lighting. He also worked with, with way fewer crew members. Like on the first day, he was like, hey, we can, we can, I'm not going to use these people. If you want to let them go, you can, because I got nothing mm-hmm. for them. Um, he accepted the job on a Friday, and then he spent the entire weekend looking at dailies for Chinatown and watching Polanski's earlier work to see what his version of realism was, something that Polanski kept stressing. He then started the job on Monday, so he had wow. basically three days to prep. Uh, ultimately, only a handful of scenes in the finished film including the Orange Grove confrontation, were shot by Cortez. Oh. Um, because Polanski's English was poor, uh, Alonzo actually knew Italian, so him and Polanski would communicate through Italian because they both knew the language. It's kind of like uh, when we did Good, Bad, the Ugly. Uh, was mm-hmm. it Leone and, uh, and uh, well, Eli Wallach? Eli Wallach, yeah. yeah. They, they spoke through, a, was it Spanish? Or? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, through a different, yeah. Yeah, because he couldn't speak Italian. I mean, and yeah, and he couldn't speak, speak English. English very well. Yep. So Alonzo would then translate for this crew <laughs> what Polanski asked. Now with the cast, tensions on set would arise with Faye Dunaway almost immediately. There had been rumors that she was difficult to work with and it seemed to be kind of coming true early on. Uh, me and the crew were beginning to dislike her because she would be late. Uh, she would kind of keep asking for a makeup team to help her with stuff while shooting, either like add more makeup, take away, take away makeup. And she kind of kept interrupting takes is what they said. Oh, wow. She would she would say like, hey, can we start over? Some would say she didn't know her lines. And that's what kind of caused a lot of the pauses between lines in the movie. Uh, soon the crew would turn against her and Dunaway would develop a paranoia around the set, feeling she was only there because Jane Fonda turned down the role oh, man. Um, and kind of had suspicions about everyone. Yeah. Things came to a head with Polanski very early on uh, during the, I think the Brown Derby scene, which uh, after each cut, Dunaway kept calling for a makeup team to come over. Finally, Polanski said he would do it if she needed it and stop calling them over. Mm-hmm. During one take after, or during a take after that, when Dunaway had a, fair, a hair fall on her face, he plucked it straight, he plucked the strand out of her head, like pulled yeah. it out and Dunaway freaked out. And honestly, rightfully so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, feeling he crossed the line. Uh, Dunaway would storm off set and she would get her agents to tell Bob Evans to fire Polanski. <laughs> Evans refused. Um, they were saying, Hey, we got Mark Rydell, one of our clients to do it. And Evans like, I plan to have Dunaway and Polanski on this picture. I'm not going to fire her. I'm not going to fire him. We're going to do. And they, I guess they settled their difference dealt with it. Yeah. I don't know if so, but they dealt with it. 
Nicholson, however, had a very different demeanor on set compared to Dunaway, it seems. Uh, Jack was apparently always on set, even when he wasn't needed, just sitting in Polanski's director's chair with his feet up reading newspapers. (laughs) Uh, They said he always knew his lines. Uh, and he said he loved being on set and being around a crew because reminding him when he was like starting out in the business. The only thing that took him away from the set was watching the Los Angeles Lakers play basketball. Oh, they said that basically he would stay on set all day until he would go to the Laker game and then his reservation for Dantana's and then drinks the Rainbow Room or whatever. <laughs> uh, Polanski said Nicholson was one of the best actors he worked with because he never let Polanski's focus on camera get in the way of his acting. Nicholson said that he had to change his approach to acting in this movie because Polanski was different than Bob Rafelson and Mike Nichols. He said he couldn't develop a character the same way because Polanski was constantly starting and stopping to get the right angle or shot, so he couldn't just explore like he used to. It seems like they only that Nicholson, Jack, and Roman only had one major blow up on set, and that deals with the Los Angeles Lakers. Oh man. The Lakers were facing the Boston Celtics in Boston, and Jack was watching the game on television. Polanski apparently was taking too long to set up a shot, so Jack kept running back and forth between the set and his TV in his dressing room, or or his his yeah, in his dressing room to watch the game. Finally, when Polanski was ready, an hour and a half had passed when he was supposed to be ready, and it was now overtime between the Lakers and Celtics. And when they asked Jack to come to set, he refused to come to set. <laughs> Saying, I wait an hour and a half for him. He can wait a few minutes so I can watch this game. And then the Lakers went in the double overtime. (laughs) Jack still refused to come to set. And Roman's like, what the fuck is double overtime? (laughs) He doesn't know anything about American sports. Uh, And to where finally Roman goes into his room with a mop to try to break the TV. (laughs) He can't reach it because he's too short. (laughs) And And the TV's too high up. To where finally he just, I think, pulls it down or something. Jack and him start getting to a screen match saying, I want you on set right now. Jack then takes off all his clothes and throws them at Roman. <laughs> and to where Jack's standing in his dressing room just in his underwear. Then Roman takes off all of his clothes and throws them at Jack. And they're just yelling each, yelling at each other in the middle of the dressing room. <laughs> till finally they both leave, storm out, get in their cars, respect respected cars, and drive off with the crew thinking they have both quit the movie. Till finally a few minutes later, Jack or, or Roman looks over at a stoplight and Jack's sitting there at the other car laughing at him. <laughs> and they both get out of the car and just like standing in their underwear like on sunset <laughs> or sunset, I think. Uh, just like, let's just pretend we didn't make up when we go back to set because <laughs> i thought it was hysterical right um at the time of filming uh jack nicholson had just started dating angelica houston john houston's daughter uh this made his scenes with her father uh rather uncomfortable uh especially as the only time she came to set apparently was when they were filming the scene when noah interrogates nicholson with uh mr Giddis, did you sleep with my daughter yeah and that's the scene that Angelica was on <laughs> there for. Uh, when it came to ending the film, Polanski eventually wrote the final ending with Noah Cross winning and taking Catherine away as Evelyn is shot in the middle of Chinatown. Polanski said, I knew that if Chinatown was to be special, not just another thriller where the good guys triumph in the final reel, Evelyn had to die. Mm-hmm. And that leads us to Aftermath. The film be released on June 20th, 1974, and it would gross $29 million at the box office on a $6 million budget. 
and pretty much was met with immediate praise. Ebert said when he added it to his great movies list, Nicholson's performance was key in keeping Chinatown from becoming just a genre crime picture, along with town screenplay, concluding the film seems to settle easily beside the original noirs. Mm. Um, uh, only one that looks like it gave a kind of a mixed review was Vincent Canby, uh, mm-hmm. which is not surprising, uh, was not impressed with the screenplay as compared to the film's predecessor, saying Mr. Polanski and Mr. Tan have attempted nothing so witty and entertaining, being content instead to make a competently stylish, more or less 30-ish movies that 30th 30s 30s-ish movie that continually made me wish I were back seeing the Maltese Falcon or Big Sleep. Damn. But noted Nicholson's performance calling it the film's major contribution to the genre. And many praise Nicholson, many praise the script, many praise Faye Dunaway. Uh the film was an Oscar favorite in terms of nominees, but not in terms of wins. It was nominated for Eleven Oscars. Holy shit. Only winning one. Costume or? Best original screenplay. Oh, nice. Nice. Here are the nominees. And again, I want to kind of talk about this here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the end of an era for this type of filmmaking. Here are the five best picture nominees. One, the least talked about today, the towering, the towering Inferno. Next would be Lenny by Bob Bob, mm-hmm. Bob Fosse. Then The Conversation by Francis Ford Coppola, Chinatown, and the winner of the year, Godfather Part Two by Francis man. Ford Coppola. Also that year, which got Best Director nominees, Day for Night with Francois Truffaut, yeah. uh, A Woman Under the Influence with John Cassavetes. Much deserved. There was also uh, Claudine, Alice is a Live Here Anymore from Scorsese, uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, um, uh, Blazing Saddles is that year. Um, murder on the Orient Express, Young Frankenstein. Holy shit! Um, I think I think Evans got Alonzo. I think it was Alonzo from Young Frankenstein. He was go to shoot a Young Frankenstein instead. Shot, um, Chinatown instead. Great Gatsby was also that year. Yeah, Coppola was busy. I was gonna say because Coppola didn't direct that. He yeah, wrote. He wrote, wrote, wrote it, but still, like, yeah, yeah, he was busy. Still. Oh, Phantom of the Paradise was that year. De Palma. Mm-hmm. Um. So longest yard was that year uh so it was a big year and chinatown had 11 nominations godfire part two had 11 nominations as well godfire two would win six of those 11 basically kind of sweeping mm-hmm. uh that so i guess it's like i mean what do you do yeah i mean those two all-timers are <laughs> like, on top of all the other movies on the list yeah like it's, if you're it, just comparing it, those two. it's like if you look at that that's if you look at just five that's like one of the best years of of yeah. oscar nominees ever um and somehow it's like you just wish you could split some of it. I do wonder if it was nowadays with those split. But I guess it's like Godfire Part 2, again, is another period piece. So it's like costume design is going to be great. Cinematography yeah. is going to be great. It's hard to uh, to determine. Um, but yeah, it very much is seen as kind of a 74 to me is like kind of the fitting end of this period because Jaws is 75 and that's where kind of the dam breaks the sharks re- the sharks released mm-hmm. uh and blockbusters are king and Chinatown I would say Godfather as well but Chinatown is a good representation of like taking all the things that were making like as a throwback to the old Hollywood system by taking those like those talented people of of their different divisions of costume designing or production design putting it all together with a young director, with a young hot star, with a talented screen, with, uh, uh, screenplay or screenwriter and doing a, a 
tribute to the old movies in attempt to become a classic as well. And then pretty much soon after like Bob Evans, um, would no longer be head of Paramount not long after, even though this was a success. Yeah. Um, even though weirdly he would have a exclusive deal with Paramount until his death in like 2021. Oh, wow. Um, as like a courtesy because he literally saved the, the studio. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nicholson would go on a massive run for the rest of his, for pretty much the rest of his career. Right. Cause he's now retired. Um, uh, town would have, a career afterwards, but never fully, I would say never fully capture the, the, the greatness of Chinatown. He would do shampoo right after, and then do a lot of rewriting, like for marathon man, heaven can wait, like, uh, uh, reds, um, kind of the friends that he's met along the way. Um, and then he would come back later and do the two Jakes for Nicholson, who would direct it, which we've actually covered the two Jakes in this podcast many years ago. How do you feel about it? I think it's what sucks about that movie is that it just happened to be a sequel to Chinatown. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's good. Yeah. It's not great. It's good. I think it just gets a bad rap because it's the sequel to Chinatown. Yeah. Nicholson, I, Nicholson's actually really good in it. Yeah. My dad loved that movie. Well, really? I mean, he loved Chinatown too, but yeah. he loved the two Jakes for some reason. I like two Jakes. I mean, it's like, I, I love Madeline Stowe. Yeah. Madeline Stowe's in there. There's a scene in there that I won't, I won't talk about on this podcast, but it's just, it's, it's, it's Jack being Jack. Um, <laughs> Uh, and he's great. And it's like older Jack, so he's just a little more like like just like life kind of sucks type thing. Like I don't know, man. Um, I think he's great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Town does that. Does Days of Thunder? Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> he did did incredibly right on Crimson Tide. He wrote Mission Impossible right. uh, along with David Cope. Um, so yeah, it's like everyone. It's everyone goes in weird ways after the career. I would say. Besides Nicholson, everyone kind of takes a downward turn mm-hmm. after this movie comes out. So it is again kind of a last, um, like kind of nail in the coffin for uh, this period of filmmaking. Um, and then Chinatown now is considered one of the greatest movies of all time, as we talked about. Um, it was named uh, a uh, let's see, second greatest mystery film according to the American Film Institute in two thousand eight. Um, of course, ranked like 19th on, uh, or last AFI list was ranked 21st. Mm-hmm. Um, it was ranked, uh, by sight and sound in 2012. I don't know if it is now where it's at now with the, with the sight and sound thing, but in 2012, it was ranked as the, uh, 78th greatest film according to critics and 91st best film according to directors. I don't know if that's dropped or not. Um, there's talks of doing a prequel series, this movie. Uh, by David Fincher in town for Netflix. I don't know if that's happening still. Um, I can't. It's last that was reported. I see is in 2019. Yeah. Um, and then of course as I said Ben Affleck is attached to direct uh, and write a uh, a film based on the making of Chinatown, as we've kind of t- discussed. Um, but yeah, with all of that, David, what worked about Chinatown? I mean, the, I I think kind of like what we talked about the um throughout this month is that not the the mystery itself or the case itself doesn't necessarily have to be compelling in the traditional sense for mm-hmm. like these kind of movies to work but i do think this mystery is actually really well crafted and yeah. it keeps you it, it it may take like a watch or two or maybe three to like fully grasp everything that's happening but i i don't think it's as confusing as some of the other you know movies in this genre i agree know? yeah uh and i think it's pretty clear you know like what 
the, the reasons behind everything. Yeah. So, uh, the motivations. And yeah, I mean, the performances are great. Um, I, I, I love seeing Jack go head to head with John Houston. I love him, his, his romance with Faye Dunaway. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it's, it's, it's really just, I, I can't um, to speak about it enough. And yeah. I mean, we talked about the cinematography. It's a beautiful, beautiful film and, 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 and really smart in how it, frame scenes how it blocks scenes how it, yeah you know, scenes are shot I mean, that's why i wrote down there's some interesting shot selection in this movie there's the one scene when evelyn the real evelyn goes to ask jake to do the do the case and he shoots evelyn in like a close-up they shoot evelyn in a close-up but they shoot jake in like a like a medium kind of wide but you're really in on her tight, and then you're not in on him tight. And it just yeah. has this weird feeling where the visual structure is saying something more than what the dialogue's saying. Right. And that's just kind of key to the directing. And then he kind of does that a lot, again, when, when they're in the bed after the sex scene, when Evelyn kind of reveals some pieces of information to Jake, and she, he shoots, him, shoots her from the front, where you see her face clearly. Then he shoots jack from the side yeah so you actually don't get his reaction fully but you can kind of read in his like body language he's like oh shit that's a big piece of information (laughs) and that's when he gets up and like he go breaks her tail light and like that's when he's gonna he realized i gotta follow her she's telling me she's not telling me everything yeah and then a great scene when he when she go when he goes and actually confronts her the first time in the car like yeah tell me the truth or i'm gonna take you to the cops yeah if you don't tell the truth i'm taking you to the cops um, but yeah, I think really screenplay wise, again, like you said, talk about the mystery of it. I've watched a lot of movies of late where the, the mystery is like, it's convoluted. There's too many logical leaps. Um, here it's not that way at all. I have one thing we could easily nitpick. Um, but it, it, it's fairly straightforward. Once you start putting the pieces together as Jake does mm-hmm. throughout the movie. And it was smart to put us in that perspective. Yes, yes, yes. To, to where it's not always... Uh, I, th- I do think if it was always other character pr- perspectives, then it becomes like a TV show right. and not a film. So I think... I would be intrigued to see what a Robert Town would do in the modern world of television uh, with that type of idea, which mm-hmm. would be interesting without doing a prequel to it. Yeah. Um. And then did anything not work about Chinatown? I mean, I, I think it's like as close to a perfect movie as you could get in yeah. my opinion but oh there's one nitpick i remember reading and I, it doesn't bother me but i can't remember who brought it up but it's the idea of like kind of making a bet the audience will forget something is that ida sessions is the character diane ladd she calls up jake and reveals about like looking the paper for a name yeah. that's doesn't as someone said why would she know that why would she know that piece of information? Because she's just someone who's hired to like right. like a, a very simple job. How would she know that Albacore uses retirement home people to buy land in the valley? Mm-hmm. She probably wouldn't know that. Right. But everyone knows, oh shit, that's her. They kind of don't like question yeah. how she would know it. But in and like logically she probably wouldn't know everything john houston's character is doing because she's probably never met right noah yeah, yeah um that's the only thing yeah and it's just as i think i can't remember what book i read that in and i was like oh that's a fair point and it's so when it happens it's kind of like i think you're going so much you don't really you don't really question it mm-hmm. so i think you can kind of get away with like one or two of those 
Um, again, that's a super nitpick. It doesn't really bother me, but I just thought that was a good, interesting point. Like, oh, how you can get away with something a little bit mm-hmm. if it's if the, if it's already kind of like so. Oh, she's calling him, and you're not really quite. You're like, oh, of course she'd know that, but in reality, she wouldn't yeah, know yeah. that. When you like take a step back, and- yeah, you're like, that doesn't make it. But that's the only time in the movie we're like, that doesn't really make any sense, yeah. in my opinion. Uh, film facts. I only have two. As I said, Polanski plays the gangster who cuts Jake's nose. Calls him a kitty. Yeah. Hey, good cat. Um, the, effect <laughs> was a, the effect was accomplished with a spe- special knife, which could have actually cut Nicholson's nose if Polanski had not held it correctly. Dude, because you notice his hand shaking in the scene. I was wondering. Yeah, he's probably like, terrified. Though. let me not cut my lead actor's yeah. nose. Because uh, it could get crazy. Now, here's an interesting thing. After this movie, he made a movie called The Fortune. Uh, did or? Uh, Nicholson did. Uh, Nicholson, gotcha. And he was informed this time by researchers, and this, apparently this is true, that his sister was actually his mom. Holy shit. And his mom was actually his grandmother. What? So basically, this has happened several times. Bobby Darren, the singer, also had this too, uh, where essentially a... Uh, a young woman to get pregnant at a oh, young age. I got you. I got you. I was thinking like get pregnant. No, um, no, no, no. I was thinking like some sort of incest angle, but that makes no, me, that makes sense. No, basically, yeah. yes, is yeah. that. Uh, but it was they're like mirroring like, wait, what? My sister's my mother. My grandma. My mother is my grandmother. So that would be like a pretty big shock. And you're, and you're learning <laughs> when you're like late thirties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Essentially, uh, she was only seventeen, unmarried. Her parents agreed to raise Nicholson as their own child without revealing wow. uh, his true his true parents. With June acting as a sister in 1974, Time Magazine researchers learned and informed Nicholson that June was actually his mother. Whoa! And his other sister Lorraine was really his aunt. Uh, by this time, both his mother and grandmother had died. Damn. Uh, on finding out, Nicholson said it was a pretty tra- traumatic event, but it wasn't what I'd call traumatizing. I was pretty well psychologically formed by that point because he was so late. Interesting. That's still wild. Yeah. Like you didn't know that your your sister was actually your mom. Well, like the fact that they kept that like to the grave, I mean, yeah. that's crazy. Like I, I feel like you would tell them at, at an 18, at right? At some point. Yeah. I don't know, or maybe as a teenager. Like, if, I get not telling him as a kid, maybe because, yeah. especially in that time, that was taboo. And I wonder what I wonder what his mom died of because if she died in sixty three, yeah, she was only forty three. Oh wow. Um. Well, yeah, that's crazy. So yeah, because sixty three, he's just he's still like over at Norms with with <laughs> yeah, yeah. with Bob Town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. That's that's funny that that was their hangout spot. Yeah, and that it, they were hanging with Harry Dean. There was another place. It was like it was, it was like a Vietnamese pastry pa- uh, pastry tr- shop. They hung out. Oh, like. um, but uh, but yeah, just a wild. And so, uh, uh, um, no one's actually sure uh, who his dad was. I mean, that's real pretty. Dad was. Oh, I got you. That's pretty crazy. That like Time Magazine was the one to put that together too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Nineteen seventy four. It's wild, and yeah. they're able to find that out. Right. Um. All right. Awards. Beatrice Strait Award. Actor, actress with limited scenes that kills it. John Huston. He's in too many. He I think he's it? only in like three. Okay, okay, okay. So he's in. Okay, okay. He's in. Nicholson. The Bart Nicholson one. Goes to him twice. Goes to him twice. Yeah. And then he's in the ending. And then he's in the ending. 
Okay, I'll go with John Houston. Cool. I Who were you going to say, though? It just out of curiosity. I don't know. If it wasn't John, I was like, do like Burt Young or someone. But oh, yeah, I, I mean, but he, I would think. Yeah. He deserves a nomination, too, though. Like, yeah. Uh, Burt Young's great. I mean, I Burt, only really know him from Rock, the Rocky films, but. Burt yeah, Young's yeah, great. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 again, it's such a dark character because it's just like when Jake comes to the house, he's like, oh, yeah, this is uh, this is the guy. She's like, I know. And it's like she has the, the black eye. You're like, oh, damn, this yeah. guy sucks. I think like, but it's like, but it's like also kind of like they're all kind of scum. It's kind of what it feels like, and that's kind of Jake's clientele. It, uh, it feels like, yeah. um, but yeah, um, but no, I think John Houston, he's just so creepy, um, and kind of really is the epitome of evil, uh, in this movie. And he was great when he acted, especially in this age, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's also it's 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 sometimes it's so good to see like a director become like like becoming a, a actor yeah. in a scene. To see how well they could be, you don't see it often, uh, especially of this type of uh, magnitude. Yeah, because John Houston really wasn't an actor, right? Right. But then he kind of became one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like he's not someone who like I was because an actor really big first, and then became. I think right. he, he might have done acting before him, but never. Like he's not Clint Eastwood, who's right, right, right. Being that, well, big, he was known more for directing, for directing. Um, I mean. The Maltese Falcon. I mean, it's classic of the, the genre yeah. as well. And and Houston was also known again. Why this movie kind of works? Why it's so? I'm gonna say a like I said, a a tribute to the, the Maltese Maltese Falcon, is that Houston was known for taking or books or stories that were unadaptable and adapting them, mm-hmm. and like finding the core that made them work. Is that he did so many books that were just like it's all like reflection of the golden eye. It's all narration or mostly all narration. It's hard to do. Or it's like he did, I think the dead by James Joyce. Um, all right. Treasure Sierra Madre. All these movies are hard to do. And he's, he found a way to kind of adapt mm-hmm. them. Cause he was just a very well read individual. Yeah. Um, any pot sex factor award sporting actor, actress is the most memorable. Is Dunaway? Is it Dunaway? Or is she in too many scenes? I think she's lead. Okay. I think she's lead. Then uh, I don't know who. That's why the kind of cuts out. The John Houston one kind of yeah. cuts it out. Um, I think Houston's kind of the guy here. Like, do we do we do we go? We backtrack here. Yeah, we could. Okay, <clears throat> let's backtrack because I think I think Houston's bigger. Okay. okay. Well, even if he's only in the three scenes, I guess his presence is is is, is, is more felt. felt over the rest of the. Okay, movie. so we'll backtrack for the first time ever. I think in this, um, we might have done once before. John Houston's gonna be Andy Potts Sex Factor Award. Who is Beatrice Strait Award? No, I mean, I guess we would give it to, to uh, Burt Young, right? Burt Young's great. Um, James Hong, not in a lot, but surprising to see him. Yeah. It's great to see him in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Diane Ladd's also great as Ida Sessions. Mm-hmm. But let's go. Perry Lopez is, is, as Escobar. Escobar. Yeah, I was going to throw him in the ring for the uh, for, for the, the next award. But <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, like when we were debating. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. Do, are we going to lo, lo, Lopez or Young? I don't know. Let's go. He's Young. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Because I, I love Escobar. Because he's only really in two scenes. Yeah, well, a, three, he's in the ending too. Yeah, there's a great there's a great jump cut towards the end where it's like, what'd you say? At the end where like Escobar when, when like Jake Jake whispers something, what'd you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like the same shot. It's a, it's but a quick on him, shot. Yeah. yeah. Gene Hackman MVP award: the person who carries the movie, director, actor, writer, production designer, etc. I think is between Town and Nicholson. What do you say? I would go Town. I think. No matter what Polanski adds to this movie and directing, Town has the idea, is pretty hell bent on I want to write this movie for my buddy Jack Nicholson. 
And now you can argue Jack because Jack like is, is there from the beginning as well. Yeah. And kind of spots him money and, and kind of helps get the like, he's also the one calling Faye Dunaway up when she was shooting a movie and like in like I think in it or in, in England shooting three musketeers. He's like, Hey, I want you to do this movie. Um, but I think Town's voice, no matter how you I would say Town and Company. So it's like Town and his girlfriend Julie Payne and Edward Taylor in a way is kinda like co-winners because they were so involved in the writing of it mm-hmm. but i think his voice was so present throughout um that no matter what polanski changed it was always going to be a personal story yeah no and matter, it's his story no matter how he feels about it it's his story as opposed to like a director that wrote their own material you know yes. not to discount what polanski yes. did directing this movie but yes uh yeah it's, it was his story to begin with and personal connection and everything i think he deserves it i agree completely robert tam Sweet. Hell yeah. All right, final questions on Chinatown. Who would you cast in a modern remake of Chinatown? Dude, I have no idea who to do for this. they did it. You know? It's it's a hard uh, hard role to recast. I feel like we either have to go completely in another direction, you know? Yeah, so he was 37 at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can probably do a little bit older because Jack looks older of yeah, course yeah. <laughs> people age yeah yeah i remember we talked about this when we did two jakes we talked about danny um I like that yeah um and danny's kind of floating around we talked about him with vertigo a little bit too um and of course he was at one point uh talked about for inherent vice so. inherent vice so, he's so weirdly i think i think i think just to, to show respect to danny and basically i want to get danny in a movie like this yeah, yeah. let's go with danny Sounds good. as jj now for Evelyn, uh, I wonder what you do. I don't, I'm not, not going to do Kate Winslet. We've already kind of done her earlier this month. Yeah. Um, yeah, although she would be good. She would be great. She would be amazing. There's Anne. I say Anne Hathaway. There's Anne Hathaway. I can see Downey and her. And Anne, and Anne Hathaway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she'd bring a little uh, bit, a little bit, a little bit younger than but him. I think she would bring a. Um, like I think she would play it a little differently than than Faye does. I agree, and I think also not to not to show this movie, I want to give her a better noir than Serenity. That's that's kind of <laughs> is that I the one with the crazy twist? yeah yeah because my buddy was like and like someone would argue could argue McConaughey to me for Giddis. I don't know if I'd do that. I think Danny is more interesting. Mm-hmm. I just want to put him in that role. So Dan, let's do Danny and Hathaway. I like that. Let's do it. Um, all right. How does this film fit, or does this film fit with any other genres besides the private investigator genre? Well, I mean, I guess private investigator is a subgenre of neo noir, but it's very clearly yeah. a neo noir film and a mystery as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, L.A. movie. I would, as we talked mm-hmm. about at the beginning, I think I would consider it a Los Angeles movie. Um, Maybe a transitional movie in the sense that it's yeah, between wars, right? It's between wars. Um, I would say like like public like corruption movie mm-hmm. in a way like corruption scandal or, or like showing you know the the local corruption right, in some yeah. way um because i think that can be separate than just a mystery or sure. a neo-noir um but public how, how yeah, do it, those kind of movies don't always have an investigative yeah. aspect so. and they're gonna be public corruption as like a like the other guys right yeah where it's a comedy yeah <laughs> the other guy's really just chinatown what do you think about <laughs> aim for the bushes yeah yeah, yeah. With Mark Wahlberg, um, Mark Wahlberg, I'm a peacock, you gotta let me fly. Um, and then, how does this film fit within the private investigator genre? I, I mean, like, I, you know, like the whole month we've been talking about this idea of the personal case and the, you know, the personal life. 
the case becoming the personal life. Mm-hmm. And I think Giddis is a great example of kind of becoming obsessive. And as you say, his his kind of folly at the end of the movie is that his it, the ego gets in the way of actually saving the mm-hmm. the the uh, the the victim, the the person in trouble. So um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that plays into all of the. All of the characters that we've discussed this month, in, yeah. in a sense, other than maybe Doc. I mean, even though, but even though he, he's very much becomes obsessive with this, and you know, wants to uh, protect yeah. his his uh, chest as well. So, yeah. Um, I also say like, Nick Charles is a little bit different because he, he's such a more laid back character. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think you have the and with this one, you have kind of the 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 relationship between police force and detective, and kind of the 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 job a previous job coming back to haunt him in some way uh whether that be a job that's similar or just you fall for the same like the, the kind of same tragic flaw as the character did before um and then just a little bit of tropes of just like the the wake the, always kind of from the perspective of the person they get knocked out we don't see anything else new it's just mm. from their perspective the entire time so it's a very, very kind of like central like very focused soul perspective we see in some of these movies a lot of the time and then final questions for the private investigator genre. Uh, what are some movies we didn't talk about that we you want to mention here? I know uh, Sherlock Jr. was on my uh, short list. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen Sherlock Jr.? I have not, actually. Yeah. Uh, so it's a short, uh, well, it's, I mean, it's a feature, but mm-hmm. featurette, I guess you'd say, because it's 45 minutes, but um, it's a shorter Buster Keaton film and, than his features. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, kind of like, it's a similar kind of premise to, um, uh, what's that Woody Allen movie where they go into the screen? Yeah, Rose Cairo. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's similar kind of to that okay. in the sense that he's a projectionist and then I think he gets knocked out or something and then he ends up becoming the detective mm-hmm. in the in the movies that he's watching and it kind of has to clear his name so it has a noirish plot and yeah. it's and it has a great some great gags and it's, it's fun it would have been a nice uh it is a nice counterpoint I think to mm-hmm. uh the other movies that we discussed this month and then of course the big sleep is like the yeah. another one of the ultimate um examples of the genre right mm-hmm. uh but I know that that's one that would take uh, many watches to fully well, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but uh, but I think you know like as much as we name drop Bogart this month I mean you got to you got to throw that yeah. in the in the running I agree. Um, what about you I got a few here um I would throw out something I think is what's weird about these I'm looking at this list is that we've, we've covered a lot of these in other type of Discussions. Yeah, because I was going to say Long Goodbye, but I know you guys did that. We covered yeah, Long Goodbye. Yeah. Uh, we covered, uh, like, Private, or we, we covered The Nice Guys. We covered Clute, kind of, when we talked about Alan Pakula, but Clute is up there for me with uh, Donald Sutherland. Um, two, we haven't discussed that I would say. Um, one is Angel Heart with Mickey Rourke. I've never seen it. Oh, man, I love Angel Heart. It's so, yeah. it's so crazy. Um, I've heard De Niro's really good. Supernatural name. detective movie in New Orleans, 19, like 40s, 50s. Rourke is really great. Um, Alan Parker directed it. It's kind of an underappreciated um, movie of that, like 87. Just really, really, really good movie. And mm-hmm. De Niro is great as well. Also streaming on Canopy. Um, actually, I'm going to say three. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? As I think <laughs> Thomas said that like, it's a movie that kind of introduced young kids to like the private investigator sure. genre and the noir trope. So like, if you like your friend Roger Rabbit, you can kind of get into this genre it's fairly funny, well. I didn't see that till an adult. Really? Yeah, wow. And I actually, I think I had already like taken that noir film class. So oh, I, wow. I kind of went into it with that, mm. that basis. But yeah, I mean, Hoskins is amazing. And then the one, uh, that I am, I am, I am so depressed 
that we didn't get to talk about this month is Devil in the Blue Dress, Denzel Washington. Yeah, I know you love that one. And I, by hell or high water, <laughs> I will talk about that movie on this show at some point. I'm putting it out there now. It's like, I've already like, thought, it's next, it's next year, if we're still doing the show, hopefully we will, uh, is like L.A. Noir. Is that where, because there's still a lot more L.A. Noir we could sure, discover. Sure. And that's my, that's my way of getting Devil in the Blue Dress. And that's probably what we will do. Um, well, then I'll do Pulp Fiction. <laughs> there you go. We'll find get a Pulp Fiction on the show. <laughs> Because um, I don't know if we've done a Tarantino movie. Oh, wow. I don't think I we could have. Also Jackie Brown, I guess. But. Yeah, because I, I know we did we did a Tarantino episode back in, like, way back in the yeah, day yeah. before this is this, what the show is now. But I don't think we've done a, a, a Tarantino episode, unless I'm blanking on one. Um, but yeah. Okay, so I got, I'll just go ahead, Thomas. Say, Thomas, November 2024. <laughs> Let's get that schedule going. You got Devil in a Blue Dress, You're Pulp Fiction. Got two or three more. Let's go. Um, all right. Uh, and then finally, what did you learn about this genre? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you were t- talking about it earlier, but this idea of like this, you can do a lot with this private investigator, right? Like we, yeah. we've seen multiple different time periods um, and this idea of like how a PI fits in a world that may not need him anymore or, mm-hmm. or, or that's like changed around him in yeah. a sense. And I think that that world building, um, you know, feeds into the case obviously, but also like helps make that central figure, um, you know, again, may, more relatable and maybe more mm-hmm. like uh, more of a, you, you have more of a rooting interest in that character because again, they can all, they can also be kind of bitter and, yeah. and cynical. It's, and it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's disguise. It's a mystery disguise or it's this character. So it's, Character study disguise the mystery, right? And uh, and not all of them are like that. It's like you argue that Knives Out and Glass Onion are murder mysteries about P- with the PI at the, not at the center, but in, as a integral part of the story. But we're not really dis- we're not really dis- like discovering more about Benoit Blanc. No, he's just there to solve. He's it. kind of yeah. he's funny enough. He's a James Bond type character. Where he's <laughs> never really changing. Um, but I do love Daniel Craig. He's in, great in the Knives Out movies. Um, but. Yeah, it is kind of this character study that I, I and also the idea of obsession, how obsession kind of comes into play with this genre. I wasn't really, I, I, I really, even though I know we, we know a lot about the genres we were talking about, but we all we never like come in with like, here's what I want to learn a lot of the time. I we might have some ideas, yeah. but I, I never try to like force stuff together. I let it all kind of happen naturally, and the obsession idea really kind of popped up once I started looking at like once we got into Vertigo and once we yeah. got into. The, on the Patreon stuff with like Kid Detective and Night Moves, and then today with Chinatown of how that kind of comes into play, and also the idea of the the correlation of or uh, the, the relationship between police officers and PIs, and kind of the backstory and how there's always that previous case. I know one thing that kind of Thomas said was that a lot of times the person who hires you is the one who's like behind it all. Mm-hmm. That happens a lot, and that's the thing with Chinatown where it goes against it, and it's actually different with Evelyn. Um, but there's a lot of these different things, but yeah, the obsession angle and, and how it's more of a character study are kind of the two big things I kind of or how it can be used more yeah. as a character study. Um, um, and to go off to your, your point, um, prior to that is like, uh, I think watching these movies, like analyzing these movies and success succession, like new things mm-hmm. come to light, obviously. They do. And that's why I think, you know, we don't necessarily go into it like being like, Oh, I'm going to learn this. Or I'm going to learn that. Like putting the movies, you know, together yeah. gives you a new meaning, you know? And just seeing the weird connections you can make of yeah. like Robert Downey Jr. being in three of the episodes we talked about this month <laughs> for some reason. Like yeah. he's like searching for this. Like he was even supposed to be attached to Perry Mason. Oh, yeah, yeah, He was supposed to be Perry Mason before he dropped out uh, and Matthew Reese davies did it. 
Um, so he's he's like circling this genre right. in some way, and he wants to do it. And maybe, maybe prequel. Well, he's probably too old, but like maybe we give him a, a, a noir of some kind as a yeah. detective. Someone go write that. Let's get you know what we should get Downey in a in a, in a Benoit Blanc uh, movie. That's what I want to oh, see. Downey against Craig. Um, well, yeah, that's it on Chinatown. That's it on the private investigator genre. And you should also join our Patreon to hear us talk about more more private investigator movies, more noir movies. Uh, Thomas and I talked about Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and The Kid Detective as our double feature. And I think coming out after this episode, uh, Dave and I talked about Night Moves, starring Gene Hackman, directed by Arthur Penn. An interesting kind of companion piece to Chinatown. Absolutely. Also taking place in L.A., but also in more of a mod. It's a modern modern at the time in terms of the 1970s um, and the idea of the private investigator at that point. And again, all different kind of people that, that are connected of like Faye Dunaway is supposed to do night moves. Arthur Penn was supposed to do um, uh, Chinatown instead or, or possibility of yeah. that and how those, there are all these things are, all these things are happy at the same time and also representation of the time. Um, so yeah, check that out. Patreon, there's $1, $5, $10, uh, levels. Uh, thank you so much for being a patron patron who are already on there. Um, we want to keep giving you more movies or more content on movies. And we love talking about it. And we, all, we also love more. We also love discovering more stuff about the films we, we talk about. So thanks to those who do that. And then next month, Thomas and I will be discussing a, a genre we had to kind of make up. <laughs> <laughs> in all honesty we were talking we were like we've done a lot of christmas stuff and i was like what's like a, what's a christmas thing we can do we're like we've done christmas movies we've done christmas horror we've done christmas christmas adjacent i talked about doing like a retail christmas movie and then i think we kind of discussed like well what if we just like new york christmas christmas in new york is like almost like a vacation yeah. for some people yeah. and let's discuss that and how new york is used as kind of this image uh at least American image for Christmas and the holiday season. So much is around that with Rockefeller Center with the with the with the with the big with the tree and Rockefeller Center. Um movies all like it's kind of the a grand film to have Christmas in New York. Um and so we felt retail with kind of consumerism and capitalism as kind of being a hub in New York City. Right, right. And then also kind of turning into New Year's Eve as well, uh with the ball being ball dropping. So like New York is kind of this really big image so next week we're talking about elf starring will ferrell it's gonna be a fun one and you kind of see kind of the drama that happened around that a little bit of drama that happened with that movie so stay tuned for that next week uh and we'll have more coming as well for for christmas the holiday season so yeah that's all we have for this episode if you have any questions for us feel free to contact us in podcast at gmail.com send your questions comments and if you're new listener to the show or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us be sure to do so so you can stay up on our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us to review your preferred podcast platform. These reviews help us gain exposure. Uh, and we also try to learn from them as well if you guys have any criticism. But also five stars would be great on top of that because five stars, again, helps us get more exposure, helps us gain more traction. And that means more people will find us and also give us more reviews. That's the whole thing. It's a vicious cycle. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's Chinatown, baby. Forget it. Um, I'm going to butcher that line, Brandon. Um, <laughs> on purpose, on purpose, everyone. Uh, and finally, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and TikTok. Dave, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, dude. And thank you all for listening. We hope to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.